Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Iron and Soul podcast. Oh man, I am super excited today. Um, I have a guest on today that actually, this, um, Nick, before I introduce you, I just have to tell you this kind of, I don't want you to take this um, as creepy at all, but uh, I thought about doing a podcast, oh, for years now, and but when I finally got all the equipment and I started listing all of my stuff, which I had already started um, doing jujitsu and I, my kid had been doing it for a long time or for a year before, not a long time. And I had seen you coming in and out of the gym and I went, holy shit, I need to have, I want that guy on my podcast at some point. So even before that, so I don't want that to come across as too creepy, but I've been kind of stalking you a little mm-hmm. bit secretly to get you on because I'm really excited to hear your story. So without further ado, um, welcome Nick Hookstra. Good. I almost fucked that up. Um, Nick is a PhD student at the University of Kansas getting his PhD in special ed. Um, here comes the super interesting things. Well, that's interesting too. I don't, I don't mean to downplay that at all. Um, Nick is a black belt in judo, black belt in an unnamed martial arts. (laughs) Martial arts shall shall remain unnamed for dignity. (laughs) For his dignity and a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, there's a caveat here, and Nick will get into this a little bit more, but Nick is blind. Mm-hmm. Nick, um, I don't know how much Nick can see, but from what I understand, not much. No. Uh, I can detect changes in light, typically, but even that, uh, if I walk into a room, if I move from a dark area to a light area, I can typically detect a change, but uh, once I've been in a, in an area for more than a few, uh, you know, more than 30 seconds or whatever, like that sensation even goes away. So okay. pretty much, pretty much totally blind. Yep. So if, so if there's a dark room, you flip on the light, yep. you can tell that the light changes. Yes. I can detect a change. Yep. Okay. But if the, if you're in that room for a certain amount of time and the light goes off, can you detect that change? Um, usually it's easier for me to detect when a light comes on than it is when it goes off. But yeah, sometimes okay. definitely if it's, a, if it's a really sharp contrast, then yeah. Okay. So let's, oh shit. I don't even know where to, go. I thought I had an idea of where to go, but I, of course I never do nah. when I get into these things. So um, have you been blind your whole life? No, I lost my sight when I was eight years old due to a, what they call a pseudo cerebral brain tumor. Okay. That is a type of brain. They call it a pseudo tumor because it has the effect of a brain tumor, but it's not like a growth in it's, it's not like a cancerous sort of tumor. Okay. So what it was is that there was a blockage, uh, near the spinal column that prevented, spinal fluid from draining from the skull. So we all have, um, our spinal fluid circulates, it comes up the spine, uh, circulates through the through the skull, it's what cushions our brain, nice and keeps it nice and protected, and uh, it drains uh, back down the spinal column. Uh, well, the blockage was primarily right where the drainage was, so I had spinal fluid coming into the head and building up and putting pressure right behind the optic nerves. So um, they call that a pseudotumor, it's, not 
uncommon. It's not unheard of now, but uh, back in 1992 when I lost my sight, it was very uncommon. They just didn't have the same, I guess, research or familiarity with this. So um, I was relatively lucky because typically this can go one of two ways. It can put pressure on the optic nerve or it can put pressure on the brain. And um, between the two, I, I'll, I will keep my brain, thank you, and <laughs> the sight while I'm making do as, you know. As I can tell, you're doing a, you're doing a fantastic job. You just managed, I think, I, I, I mean, I don't know. We're going to get into it, but I, my office slash studio is at the top of some very steep and many stairs and he, and he handled them like a fucking gymnast. So, um, pretty impressed. So how old were you again when you eight years old, eight years old? Yep. So yep. do you remember, um, how you feel? like what it felt to like all of a sudden lose it like that moment or tell me more about that. It's, it was an interesting period because it happened over the course of several months. Uh, I remember much better the initial when it started to fade much better than I remember when it was finally gone. Okay. Um, I started to have migraines when I was seven years old in, I can't remember exactly. I believe it was January 1992, I started to have migraines and we didn't know what was going on. Uh, did a lot of CAT scans, a lot of MRIs, and they weren't, uh, they weren't finding any problems. And, uh, eventually I can't remember what spurred them to, uh, to check the pressure in the brain, but they finally did a spinal tap and and saw that the pressure in my head was, was uh, super high. So, but during this period of time, my, my vision started to get fuzzy. So initially, both eyes open, everything would look normal. But then if I'd look at the TV screen, for example, um, it would blur. And uh, this is 1992. I'm an eight-year-old, well, at the time, seven-year-old boy. I mean, Nintendo was oh, shit, everything, right? you know, playing yeah. video games. So, you know, that started to become a little blurry. Uh, looking at letters on a page started to get blurry. And uh, then... They eventually had to do two what they call optic sheath decompressions, which is when they go in through the corner of the eye socket, and uh, they cut a little, uh, like a little hole in the protection around the optic nerve. And the reason why they did that is that when they started to realize that there was so much pressure, they wanted to give the optic nerve like an area to to expand, to relieve some of the pressure. But at that point, the the blood had been pinched off from the optic nerve for too long for it to. Uh, for it to recover. So uh, okay. there was about three months where the vision was fading. And then, then it kind of all went at once sometime, probably in May, I believe of 1992. Um, I don't remember those, those details extremely well. What I do remember is I had a, we, I had a doctor who was not good with kids oh, and he said something. Jesus. Yeah, no, it was, he said something like, Okay, well, I want you to close your eyes and walk across the room. That's what your life's going to be like. <laughs> like, Jesus okay. fuck, man. Yeah, I was like, Thanks all right, asshole. That's, uh, <laughs> that's some real empathy there. Yeah, have, um, have you been back to see that doc? And You know, years explain? later, I did go back. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, he actually apologized for some of his behavior. I think he went through a bit of a change at some point. He, he was a much more... Uh, personable individual uh, years later when I went back and I haven't seen him now in maybe 15, 20 years. Let's see. Yeah. Probably 20 years. It's been since I've, since I've seen him, but uh, yeah, I think he, I don't know if it was my case specifically, but something changed his perspective a little bit. 
Um, I kind of had this vision in my mind, and I don't know if it's from a movie <clears> or <throat> or what that like this intense fear, like when you've when you started to lose that sight. Did you feel f- like like lots mm. of fear and like what it was going to be like, or did, were you pretty settled with as it came along? That's that's a good question. I here's what's really weird. Before any of this happened, we had a second grade. We had a unit or a story that we read about somebody being visually impaired. This And this is before I started to get ill. And I remember having this thought of like, that would be so horrible. And then when I started to get sick, it didn't really, I don't remember the fear once I was already ill or once I was already going through all this, probably because I didn't know what was going on and I didn't know what was, you know, where it was going to end up. So I don't really remember much fear during, during the time that I was going through all this, but I do have this very distinct remember, uh, memory of before any of this happened being like, wow, being blind would be horrible. Like, I just can't imagine that it's in, it's so weird that that memory so clearly I was sitting in my mom's car and like she had picked me up from school that day and maybe I was telling her about what we learned in school I just remember being like oh that'd be horrible so wow yeah that's that's really interesting and kind of like I mean obviously we would all think that as a second grader yeah and then it happens and then my my guess from what I know about you so far you don't spend a lot of time in regret I bet no, uh, definitely try not to. Yeah. I, I mean, we all have, we all have our, our challenges in life mm-hmm. and it's a matter of, you know, I, you can look at them in, in the sense of how, how you can take your challenge and use it to your benefit, use it to make you stronger, use it to distinguish you a little bit. And you know, that's kind of, there, I, that's not to say that there are not frustrations or times when I'm sad about, you know the situation that my life has been in and more, more when I was younger, I think high school was, was a lot more difficult. Uh, and as a, as an adult, there were definitely times where I get frustrated with, with the fact that there are things that are, you know, more difficult, but it, you know, you can't really dwell on it and you, you know, use it to your advantage as much as you can. I, I had some great, I think, influences growing up in that regard that helped, help me, uh, look at life in a more positive aspect. Okay. So, how were your, what, so after you went fully blind, right? Mm-hmm. At, at eight, right? Yep. What were your parents like in, um, moving forward from there? Like how did, how did you all guys cope together emotionally? And then what were like some of the, your remembrances of like next steps and how did they treat you? Yeah. And yeah, no, I, I'm very lucky with the parents that I, that I have, uh, were extremely supportive I, the the months immediately after losing my sight, uh, I know were difficult for for everyone. I definitely know, like emotionally, uh, both of my parents uh, having you know their their struggles with it as well. But they were always in a very supportive, not not really looking at it as what I was limited in doing, but how that how they could aid me in doing as much as I could. Which I think there's a very there's a very fine difference there that you can you know, have a child with a disability and say, what can you not do? Or you can have a child with a disability and say, all right, how can I assist you to do everything you can do? And I think that's where my parents were, were really 
great in that regard as, you know, any, any way that they could help educate me, help, um, assist me in, in, I don't know, reaching full potential or whatever. And also, uh, I had a teacher, my third grade teacher was an extremely positive influence with them. Um, I know my, my parents tell the stories that when they first took me to, uh, well, let's step back here for a bit of context. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Michigan. Okay. Uh, called you, what's that when you say small house how small town like how small uh ooh, maybe ten thousand people okay, at the most 10, okay yeah smaller than lawrence for sure for sure okay um well lawrence i wouldn't even consider it a small town lawrence is a decent a city yeah it's a city yep. that was a, definitely a small town um like uh my high school had 400 people across all four grades oh wow that is pretty small yeah so a small town so when i lost my sight i transferred to a school in the city proper Okay. Uh, which is Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's oh, that's oh. a big city. Yeah, that is a big city. Um, they had an inclusive school that was, it was a neighborhood school, but it was also designed with having an inclusive unit in mind. So there was an entire wing of the school that was devoted to um, different types of uh, orthopedic therapies, uh, speech and language development. And they also had a classroom with two teachers who uh, could teach the blind. So the idea was that students would get the support that they needed, but then could also be integrated into the regular uh, inclusive classroom. Okay. So when I lost my sight, the beginning third grade, I would transfer to the school. And I, I remember my parents telling stories about when they, they took me out to the school for the first time to meet the, the teacher that I would have. They were terrified because they were like, this lady's like, you know, a drill sergeant. She's super like Nick's, Nick's going to do everything. I'm, you know, there's no, no leeway, you know, highest expectations. Just really, that was her attitude though. It was to this, it doesn't matter that he can't see it. He's going to do everything and beyond that any other student would do. And I think at first my parents were, were quite startled by that, but, uh, it was also, you know, they, they will say it was this fantastic influence. The, the first day they said they didn't want to leave me with this lady. <laughs> but at the same time, like now we all recognize that this lady was, was fantastic. This she, lady is what you needed in that moment. She is what I needed in that moment. She used to challenge me to break rules. Um, that was her big thing. I think what I learned in third grade was I need, I learned how to break rules because I was the sort of kid that <laughs> letter of the law, oh, like interesting. I, anything I, I made sure to, you know, never, never step outside bounds. And this lady was challenged me to like run in the hallways and things like that because she said that's you know that's it's kind of what you need sometimes mm -hmm. when you're when you have a disability and people are likely to underestimate you there's there's some fun that can be had with <laughs> with that so um if if we fast forward to today mm -hmm. and thinking about breaking rules you ever um tried to steal a car and drive it around Is that kind of breaking rules no um do but i you know i do have some caveats there i don't want to don't necessarily want to get arrested. I can give you some, uh, some good examples of, of the breaking rules, but, uh, because it is a fine line. No, we're right. not talking about, uh, breaking, breaking laws. We're talking about breaking oh, dang it. social I was, norms. I was hoping that we would see something in the, um, I mean, let's the paper, like PhD students, steals, steals blind car, student steals car, <laughs> goes on joyride, joy causes death of thousands. <laughs> like, yeah, nah, <laughs> nah. Nah, um, I have driven a car. I've, I've, I've had friends that take me out in their cars or like 
take me to parking lots and have me drive around. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's always fun. Um, so was it hard? God, that's a, I don't I don't believe in stupid questions, but I'm just gonna ask it. Yeah. Was it hard to learn Braille? No. Uh, so Braille is basically, if you present it in the right way, it's kind of fun. It's kind of a secret code. Uh, it's all the letters of the typical, you know, English alphabet, mm-hmm. just represented in a different format. So it's all you know the same. There's 26 uh, letters. There are a couple different combinations that you can do that. Uh, contractions where you can combine ing because it's it's a pretty typical appearing mm-hmm. um, set of letters. Learning Braille wasn't wasn't difficult. Uh, I think it's similar to a lot of kids try to make up their own little secret code language, where they'll replace like a letter with a number or mm-hmm. you know something like that. It's it's very similar to that. And I think at any I mean probably eight years old is a is a great time to to learn Braille because yeah, it's, you can still look at it as something kind of interesting and fun, so to speak. Do you still read from Braille today? I do. I do. Uh, less now than I used to because of the advantages that so many texts are in audio or digital formats. Mm -hmm. But I recently, I say recently, it's been four years now, bought what they call a refreshable Braille display, which is a small, it's a small box uh, I would say it's about 10 inches by four inches mm-hmm. and about one inch high. And it connects with Bluetooth to uh, your mobile phone or computer. And it has a row of, it's got a strip at the bottom that has pins that will pop up and down. I think they're magnetically controlled and it will represent whatever's on the screen of your mobile phone or, or computer. And it will put that in Braille. No shit. So, yeah, it's a uh, mine that I have. I believe is forty characters long. So it's not it's not big. Forty characters. You figure it's about half. You know, maybe half a line of text. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can slide your fingers across it, and when you get to the end of the line, you can with your um, pinky finger or your thumb hit the the button that will move it along to the next you know set of forty characters, and uh, you know pretty fluidly read across um i've used it to access books on kindle i've used it to read you know documents from from my computer in word wow it's that's... it's pretty cool it's gotten me so i'm i've always been a huge reader i i love um fiction uh, science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. and most most of my adult life i've been reading books well and my you know ever since i went blind most of my reading has been in audiobooks but since i got this refreshable braille display i've gotten back to reading a lot of books in uh braille off of kindle so i'll pick up a book oh i'm trying to think of a good a good example especially like older books that are maybe i don't want to spend the amount of money that you would spend on an audiobook uh, okay um so you know if i can get it on kindle for 99 cents or indie <clears throat> indie authors especially if there's an indie author whose uh books are maybe not available on audible um, or in, or in an audio format, but I can get it for 99 cents on Kindle. I'll read it because it's, it's fun. And, you know, I'm starting to, I think it exercises your imagination a little bit more than an audiobook. Um, and I, I love audiobooks, but there's something to be, to be said about having that personal interaction with the text. Is it, is it pacing? So like the, the, yeah. the does that have, does that give you that enough time to then fantasize about what's think, going on? I think so. And you know, I think that's a huge part of it. And audiobooks is, a, it's very passive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also very fast because somebody else is reading to you. Right. So I can burn through an audiobook, you know, in a weekend or whatever. Oh yeah. If I'm reading in Braille, it's going to take me months and you know, it's going to take me a month to get through the same thing that might take me a day uh, otherwise. But 
but I'm, I'm interacting with that text so much more closely. I'm thinking about it. It's given me time. I'm probably thinking about the plot a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, I've been excited about it. Not, unfortunately now I, I don't have as much time to, to read as I, I would like, but I always have at least one or two books that I'm reading in Braille and one or two books that I'm reading in, in audio formats. Okay. So when you imagine what a, I'm a and I'm going to be just goofy mm-hmm. here. Okay. Please. When you imagine what a lightsaber looks like or <laughs> a spaceship sure. or a unicorn or a Pegasus, yep. do you have, um, before you went blind, some ideas of what those yeah. look like so then yep. you can bring them into your brain when something like that comes up and kind of yep. fantasize off of that. Yep. No, absolutely. Um, I have a lot of, I, you know, templates for lack of a better word. The, the example that I always think of is, and, and I had such an advantage, even seen for only eight years, I, I think is such an advantage in the world that we live in because I, I had eight years of stuff that I saw and I wasn't, you know, I didn't travel around much by the time I was eight years old. I was just in a small town, but still, you know, I lo- I knew what a tree looked like and I, and I understood how a tree can look like from a distance, a stick with a circle on top. But I also understood that up close, a tree is much more than a stick with a circle on top. It's a circle that's composed of, you know, hundreds of branches that kind of look like a spherical pattern. For example, if we're, if we're being very, you know, like the very stereotypical tree that a child might draw. Right. Okay. And I think like having that perspective is, is huge. So yeah, same with, uh, you know, different animals and so forth. Um, even the idea of a skyscraper, something that is so big that as a visually impaired, you know, if, if you were born, uh, blind, you would, you wouldn't really have a concept of what a skyscraper is because it's, it's so far beyond the scope of what you could reach. You know, you'd have to walk the same distance and think of that on its, on its, you know, head. But, um, having seen a skyscraper, I can kind of envision what that, you know, the, maybe not envision so much as have the impact. Okay. So when talking, I, I, I'm going to make an assumption that you've talked to other visually impaired people that were born visually impaired Yes, and they read fiction and they have to imagine it in their brain of what that thing is, right? That they're they're, the story, right? Cause they're, yep. Yep. Do they then, have you ever asked them to describe it to you? So then you can like, because you have some frame of reference sure. to like, I'm just curious, like what that must be like compared to somebody that can see, right? No, I have it. Now I kind of want to, uh, what I was thinking about when I was saying this was more of when I was in a school with other blind individuals who had been blind from birth and watching how people taught them things like color. Okay that's kind of what I was thinking back to because of the way that it was necessary to teach them about color or even like the, the way that they were shown a model of, of something. Um, what comes to mind, this is kind of stupid, but, uh, Lego trees. If you've ever had an old Lego set that had like a little tree, it is basically a stick with a circle. on It is really, it really is. Yeah. But that's exactly the sort of thing. Like you might give a model like that to, to a blind child. Okay. Uh, I'm, or you might find something better, but it just occurs to me, like, those are the sort of things you're always with, with blind children. You're always trying to find models of things that, that can give them an idea of what something big looks like. But some, you know, and some models can really do you a good job, but like the specific example of a Lego tree, it it's a circle. And, uh, 
I remember them teaching color through texture. Okay. But, uh, so they would rub a crayon on different textured materials and they would try to use that to teach, uh, blind children what different colors could kind of be like, because they're, they're familiar with what a different texture would be as, as like sandpaper compared to cement. Okay. And kind of using that to, um, approximate what, you know, different shades or different colors would look like. I, um, I remember this movie of when I was a kid called mask. Um, and he go, he has this, um, this condition where it's like, uh, deforms his face. So he gets made fun of and he goes to this, this camp to help kids with disabilities. And one of the other counselors was a blind, um, girl and he falls in love with her okay. and, and she wants, he wants to, they're talking about color and she had yep. never, um, heard about color. And I just remember this vivid scene of like him explaining, um, colors to her and through like different textures, like you said, yep. but he heated up rocks yeah. and he explained yeah. that's what red was. Exactly. Exactly. And is that how it's, is that really how it's done or is that? I, I'm not specifically heating up rocks. I haven't seen, but yes, like the hot as, uh, think about, I, if I remember correctly, one of the things that they did was like the sun on, on hot, on hot pavement, for example, or something like that. That's it's cool. definitely like all we, the red is associated with, with hot. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's interesting. I, I really find that fascinating. And like of why. course, blue with cold. Always. Blue, yeah. Blue with cold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess because fire is red. I mean, nowadays I think we could, uh, we could associate, um, uh, uh, like forest fires in California with gender reveal parties and maybe blue is now fire. Uh, was it a, was it a baby boy? Was it a baby girl? Who knows? Oh, so true. Oh my God. It's terrible. We might have to just completely change this oh, color scheme. Oh, I think we, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. Holy cow. Um, how, how difficult was, um, I mean, high school's well, even middle school yep. is difficult for any kid going oh, yeah. to teens and, and then high school can be, um, pretty rough. How was it pretty rough for you in high school or, Okay. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I, I would say middle school was probably the more difficult, uh, than high school, but yeah, I, so going into middle school, for example, uh, I was kind of at a, a crossroads of, of a number of reasons to get picked on and I wasn't hugely picked on, but I also didn't have a ton of friends in middle school. Uh, I was quite overweight at the time because when I was sick as a child, uh, some of the medicines that they gave me were steroids. Oh yeah. So they really puffed me up yep. and I hadn't grown out of it. They say that last year system, I don't remember for how long, like 10 years or something absurd. Oh, wow. So I was still quite, quite overweight going into middle school, very awkward. And, uh, also having a disability, it was a challenging time, especially, uh, the first couple of years getting into high school, I started doing wrestling. All the weight fell off, you know, within a year. Wait, you wrestled in high school? Yes. I was a high school wrestler. Yep. So, okay. This is where I start to get, not that I wasn't fascinated mm -hmm. before, Yeah. but this is the shit that like, I really love about people, right? Yeah. Is this perseverance, this, this willingness to, um, challenge their own fear, whatever sure. that was. Tell me why wrestling how the yep. heck did that happen? So growing up, wrestling was always one of the ways that my dad and I interacted. My, my dad's family, my dad came from a family of five brothers. They were all, well, I don't know if they were all, but at least three of them were wrestlers. Uh, growing up as a kid, always wrestled with dad. It was just such a natural part of like 
interactions with people, even with friends in kind of elementary school, even after I'd lost my sight, some of my friends in elementary school, we'd still wrestle. When I got to high school, it, I wanted, I think, to do something. I wanted to ha- like have that community, and I really wanted, I thought wrestling, wrestling seemed like a really good, inclusive uh, sport. Uh, it was, you know, it's purely, it's full contact. I think maybe <clears throat> one of the wrestling coaches tried to, tried to uh, poach me, if I'm not mistaken. I think one of the wrestling coaches um, came to me and said, like, have you considered wrestling? Probably when I was in middle school. And I think that was probably what uh, sparked my interest again. But yeah, then uh, I started. I started it my freshman year, and it was a great way to to have a community of friends to build up self esteem. I I attribute to this day most of my success in life. I attribute to having done sports in high school. I think it gave me it gave me a, a community in high school. It gave me a place where I felt like I had friends. It also gave me that kind of willpower and just wrestling is not an easy sport. Well, I was just about to say, I was just about to say to, um, I joke, I know you've listened to this podcast a little bit before and I joke about having the one listener, right? Like I have one listener. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain to that one listener, my viewpoint and a lot of other people's viewpoints are wrestling is the hardest sport. Yeah. The, those, that wrestling room is intense and, um, unforgiving. Yep. Um, and you coaches are in, are pretty intense and it and it's hot and it's tough and you work your butt off yep and so and it develops boys into men rather quickly yeah absolutely or um girls into women, women. or yep. whatever gender you want to say, say or whatever pronoun or anything it develops people into really tough tadpoles into frogs man. that's right exactly yeah. and 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 creates a lot of character in yeah. people um oh i absolutely i i think it was the best thing that i did as far as academics i was never academics for me were never an issue and it was never going to be an issue i needed that uh i needed the sports okay. that's what that's what changed my my life and so i i for some reason, I imagine in my mind people taking it easy on you in the wrestling room, but I don't, mm. but I don't, I imagine it, but I don't believe it. Does that right. make sense? Like yep. Yep. when I think about it in my head, I imagine them not, but I don't believe it. I don't remember it happening in, in wrestling so much. Uh, definitely as an adult in martial arts, I've had people try to take it easy on me. Mm-hmm. Never in wrestling that I recall. Good. That's and awesome. no, it, it was that's super. The, the, I think in part what you were saying about how intense wrestling is, you also you develop really tight relationships mm-hmm. with the people that you wrestle with, which is interesting because they don't consider wrestling to be a team sport in air quotes, not like basketball or football. But at the same time, you're going through such shit with these other people that you do develop a really oh. tight, tight relationship with your team. Oh, yeah. And whatever Billy has, mm-hmm. you're getting to. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, yes, ringworm yeah. or the cold, ringworm or the cold, COVID, or the flu, whatever. COVID. <laughs> yep. it's, you know? it's circulating through that, uh, yeah. through that wrestling room. Yep. I, I attribute. So my middle son's a wrestler and I attribute hit and he grew up with, um, asthma and allergies and sure. just had a different path. And I attribute like wrestling to, to him basically being cured of the majority of that stuff, just because yeah. he's, 
in there with all the junk, you know, and just get and you know, breaking down his immune system and building it back up. So, yeah, I, and you know, what's funny is looking back on it and how, how out of shape I was when I started looking back on that. Now I go, how in the world did I survive these like three hour practices right? every day? I don't know if I could do that now and I'm in good shape now, man, but still looking at that, they're intense. They're I super um, intense. I'm he, cause, cause of COVID and, and things like that, the wrestling has been a little bit, um, put on, um, hold. hold. So he started jujitsu in yeah. on the, um, the zoom stuff in the spring. And then now is in class with everybody. And he's definitely like, it's definitely, I can tell he doesn't work as hard. Sure. Right. But yep. just different. I mean, his mind works differently yes. because of jujitsu, but just, he's not as, uh, athletic in that sense because they're just, they don't work. You just don't work as hard physically. No, it, you yeah. don't have to necessarily. Yeah, exactly. You can, but yep. you also don't have to. So you went through high school wrestling. What other sports did you play in high school? I did track and field. I did a uh, shot put discus and a couple times uh, sprinting with a, with a guide run right on. Um, they realized I was fairly fast at sprinting. So a couple times they had me do just to, just to get me involved in things the coaches were also really good about, they just wanted to, they didn't care what I was in. They just wanted to keep me doing activities. So there are a few times I did sprints. Um, but yeah, shot, shot point discus was not good at either one of those <laughs> also didn't really care. Right. Just, I mean, track and field at my school, at least, unless you were a runner, you were just there to hang out after school. Right. Yeah. There was no, we did not care about winning shot, but okay. So you, you do wrestling, you do pretty well in academics. It's your senior year. Yep. How do you decide college next steps, things like that? Yeah, it was never for my parents. It was never, it was never a doubt that I was going to go straight to college there. I would say the job market for, for someone who is blind, especially 20 years ago was limited without a college education. It would be next to, you would be, you know, in sales would Mm -hmm. be the only, the only real option. And that was something that just, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in. So I, uh, I applied to the university of Michigan. It was the only college I applied to, which people were, were also like, you, you realize the university of Michigan's a good school. Like, do you need a backup? Do you want a backup? Like, nah, I'm just, nah, I'm going to go there. So, uh, yeah, I went to the, I applied to the university of Michigan, got accepted. And, uh, that was about three hours, two and a half hours from where my parents lived. So okay. that was also kind of, kind of a big, big move going right. go out on my own for the first time. I lived the uh, first year is well, a requirement in, in, in air quotes. I'm sure there was a way to get out of it, but primarily it was expected that everyone lived in the dorms freshman year. Okay. So, uh, yeah, my parents came, came down there, dropped me off. I'm pretty sure that may have been the most terrified I've ever been in my life. Really? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, is it that like breaking through and like not having the yeah, support? no support. Like now it's, it's all on you to go everywhere mm-hmm. on your own. Also where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of opportunities to walk around suburb uh there were not sidewalks typically and even when there were sidewalks there was no place really to walk on those sidewalks so uh then i moved down to ann arbor michigan which is which is a fantastic town oh yeah i love it and yeah i mean i all throughout um elementary middle and high school i had what they called uh, uh mobility lessons which is basically where I would learn how to navigate independently with my cane walking around mm-hmm. uh, a city area. Okay. 
So I had those lessons all throughout growing up. But then when I when I actually moved out of home and and got to uh, Ann Arbor, then it was like, okay, now now it's all you. Now it's just, you know, no one's going to be there to to come and pick you up if you get lost or anything. It's it's totally onto you to to walk around. And I do remember the first time I left my dormitory, just going, well, I need to get over to the office that um, the uh, office of um, student services. And it's like, okay, well, I know more or less where it is. I'm just going to leave my dorm and start walking and uh, see if I get there. And <laughs> see if I get there. See if I get there. And, you know, now it's like, what, 20, you know, 20 odd years later. And, and I've lived now in like six countries and walked all over the place. And you know, it's like, it's it's funny to look back on those things that that was such a small little little walk that meant so much at the time. And now, I mean, a few years back, I, I uh, traveled to Spain and did an 800 kilometer hike across Spain by myself. It just showed up. What? So, yeah. yeah the Camino, Shut up. Yeah. The Camino what? de Santiago. It's uh, the St. Saint, Saint James Way. It's called. It goes from, oh, there are several, but the one that I did goes from the, the Pyrenees uh-huh. uh, across Spain, uh, across uh, kind of the northern part of Spain into uh, Asturias and Galicia and ends in uh, Santiago de Compostela. And uh, I just went, um, I went, I speak Spanish. So at least I had the language going for me. I went and I, I caught a bus to where the, the Camino begins. And I just got off the bus and literally snagged somebody else who was getting off the bus and said, eh, I'm blind. Uh, where do we go from here? And no shit. I just continued to do this for 800 kilometers, 30, 30 odd days. I ended up falling in with a, falling in with a really cool group. And uh, to this day, it's, it's the, probably the bravest thing I've, I've ever done as far as just, we're just going to throw ourselves to the wind and where, see. Where did this adventurous spirit and bravery come from? I'm, and, and I don't yeah. mean that, like, I hope that doesn't come across as no. condescending or anything no, like no, that. No, no, not like, at all. That's pretty, I mean, that's adventurous for somebody that can fucking see. Right, right. I don't know where it all came from. I, I think there's some sadistic, not sadistic, it'd be masochistic part of me that wants to figure out how far I can push myself. Always wants to go, well, are you comfortable? Let's, let's push that envelope just a little bit more. Let's see what else you can do. Um, and especially, especially in my twenties, that was, that was always the, when I graduated from college, I moved to Spain. I lived in uh, Andalusia for two years as I taught English in a, in an elementary school there. Okay. And then I moved to Japan from there and, and lived in Japan for almost four years. So, so and, let's pause yeah. for just a second. Yep. So what did you get your bachelor's degree in? My bachelor's degree, I did a dual major in psychology and Spanish. Okay, psychology and Spanish. Yep. And then so from there, can you give me a year? What year did you graduate? Um, from? Two, 2006 I graduated. Okay, so then how did you... I'm sure there's lots of things going on. You're in college and experiencing yep. a lot of different things. And... Um, and then you're like, I'm going to go to Spain and teach English. Like, how did that, like, how'd that come across your plate? So partly there were a few, a few factors. Uh, I, a friend of mine forwarded me an email and I don't remember where he received it, but the ministry of education of Spain was looking for English teachers to come out, um, to be, Uh, like a teaching assistant in classrooms. So a friend of mine put me onto it, but part of it was I didn't really have a clear idea when I graduated of, of what I wanted to do. Uh, I'd been working at a daycare center. They offered me a job there. They said I could stay on and work at the daycare center, but 
you know, it was it was an interesting opportunity, but at the same time, I was like, oh, there's this chance to go to Spain. If I go to Spain, like, I can really learn Spanish, not just, you know, classes that I've had at, at college, but really have the language as a skill. And that was very, also very attractive. So when I did go to Spain, I, I, you know, I made a point to always live with Spanish speakers. I, I wanted to walk out of that experience with a solid skill. Okay. Um, so that was part of the impetus. And, and also just, I mean, all my friends were going in different directions. The thing with university of Michigan is you've got people coming from all over, all over the world. So, you know, some of my friends were returning to their countries. Other friends were returning to their States or their cities. We were all kind of going our separate ways. I didn't, I felt a little ungrounded. So, I mean, that's a great time to take a leap like that. Okay. So were you adventurous before, like, had you traveled much before you went to Spain after that? Yeah, I during college I had, uh, I did a, a small study abroad. I shouldn't call it small. I did a I did a, a semester abroad, and the reason why I did that was my my girlfriend at the time was also studying abroad, so it was a way to ease myself into that experience. Okay. It felt like it was, I felt like I was studying abroad with a uh, cushion, so to speak. At least I knew I had somebody I could rely on, so that 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 gave me a chance to see, okay, it's possible for me to live abroad. It's, um, it's not easy, but it's doable. Okay. And, uh, then when I graduated from college, moving to Spain was doing it again, but this time without that safety net, without a girlfriend that was also going to be there. Okay. So you go to Spain, you teach, you teach English for two years. Um, probably had a fabulous time. It was fantastic. I Andalusia right on the Mediterranean coast, uh, made next to no money, but also didn't need any money. I was right. I think I made like 600 Euro a month and 300 of that basically immediately went into like having a room in a, in an apartment with, with, you know, shared with three other people or five other people mm. or however many other people. <laughs> and then the other 300 euros was food. Right. And that's all I, that's all I needed. Okay. It was beautiful. I just, I met a lot of really cool people, did a lot of hiking in the southern part of Spain, smoked a lot of weed because ah, yes. it's, it's friggin' Andalusia. It's right next yeah. to, uh, to Morocco. They get some good stuff coming through there. Uh, yeah. And just, I mean, overall had a, had just a fantastic time. I still feel like, you know, part of my heart will always be in Andalusia. Just, it was such a fun culture to live in. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to travel back there again. I'm, well, I have visited a, I've only been back to visit, I think, once since I left. But uh, I still stay in contact with some, uh, a few of the people from there. Okay. So before we hit Japan. Sure. When was the first time you smoked weed? First time I smoked weed was in college, freshman year. Freshman year. Um, I have a lot of funny, dumb stories about about that. But, uh, yeah, no, I... Oh, man. When was the first time I specifically smoked? I'm trying to... I know... I remember the first time I tried to buy weed. And it was from this, like... At the time for us, what was this like super intimidating guy that lived in our dorm Uh, and it was me and a, well, yeah. And it was me and an Ecuadorian buddy of my Ecuadorian buddy of mine. I believe it was with him or it was with one of my, one of my friends anyway. And the friend that I was with was like, this isn't weed. They sold us rosemary or something. And my friend, like the guy who we bought it from was outraged. He's like, what? No, I have the best quality weed in this like city. Like, how dare you think that I would send you sell you anything less than the finest herb like known yeah. to man? 
So, but, and yeah, it was absolutely weed. It was just the friend that I was with had no idea what he was looking at. So I have to say, before we move much further, that I, there's something about you, Nick, and I think, I think it, you're either born with it or it's because you went blind. I don't know, but you have this, this, you have, there's something super adventurous with you where you, and, and I don't want to say you say fuck it, but you kind of just go, well, I'm going to try that. Yep. yep. And, and I think that that's pretty, pretty amazing and pretty impressive. I just have to say, I think that's really cool. Oh, thank you. Cause yeah. I think there's a lot of people that spend, um, I think more than people know just cause the world that I work in, right. Mm-hmm. As a therapist, people spend a lot of time in fear, right? Yes. And yep. and the fear keeps them from being, finding a passion, doing the things that they would, you know, that they dream about. There's because they, they're, they're so scared of the, what if, right. What could happen. Right? It, it's so interesting too, because, and that's something I think about too, because I, I don't know why I've been successful where other visually impaired people or other peoples with disabilities have not always been successful. And this is a conversation I've tried to have with other visually impaired people about getting over some of the fear. I'm afraid of, you know, there are things that, that honestly scare me. And there are days when I am nervous to leave my apartment because it is going to be a challenge to get someplace new or something. But it's a matter of having the, you know, part of it might be the, having had support to know that there's been safety nets in the past and to know that if something major were to go wrong, you know, there will be people who pick up the pieces afterwards or will pick me up afterwards or whatever, whether that be metaphorically or physically. And, uh, I think that that has helped. And I don't think we can really underestimate the impact of family in that and friends in that and just, you know, having had that supportive, my, my parents let me make mistakes growing up. That was always part of their philosophy was, you know, I never had a curfew. It was always, you can, you know, go be with your friends or do whatever. You're going to make mistakes, but we also want you to be intelligent enough to, to make smart mistakes and to not, you know, they, they trusted me enough to know that I wasn't going to, um, get arrested or burn down a, you know, burn down the house or something. So uh, what about like tripping and falling, right? Yeah. Like as a kid, sure. after you're born, did they, did they say, Oh, looks like they allowed you to trip and fall sure. metaphorically and mm-hmm. in reality. Right. Sure. So when you fell and, and smacked your arm or your head or yep. whatever happened, what was it? Were they like, that's going to happen or, were, yeah. you know, yeah. tell me more. Definitely, definitely. No, that was absolutely part of their, it was never, they never dwelled on the tripping and the falling. It was the, it was the getting back up. Uh, my dad tells, uh, tells a like fun story of, uh, I wanted to try to skateboard at some point. So I, I had a skateboard and he was with me and, uh, we lived just down the road from a, a small park that had a couple paths and I'd had, you know, picnic benches and play equipment and, and also like jogging paths. So I was on that trying to, uh, trying to skateboard and I completely fell on my ass and my dad was my dad's attitude reaction was just kind of like okay well get up try it again and I know there was somebody that like watched us at some point that was like well aren't you gonna like help him and like how can you tell him to get back on the skateboard like poor him kind of attitude my dad was never you know my dad's attitude was always more like 
well, he wants to skateboard, like get up and let's keep going. Yeah. You know, there's no point. Same with, same with like wrestling, you know, you lose a match and it's like, okay, well get up and try again. And that's kind of what I love about, you know, judo in particular is judo is all about falling down. And there's a great quote. Um, I don't know who originally made the quote, but I know it's something that my, my instructor from, uh, from Michigan says a lot with judo is, uh, it doesn't matter who falls down most. It's, it's who gets up. That's right. So that's a, I love that. I love that quote. I've heard that quote on similar, similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. (laughs) There's so many questions. Um, let's, while we're there at judo, when did you, so was judo your first martial arts that you found? No. And so referring back to earlier, I, I joke, but, um, the first martial art I ever found was Aikido. Uh, it was in my, my hometown. There was a, a dojo um, that the, the instructor actually fashioned it to be a quite a traditional style of dojo, and he's still a very good friend to this day. Um, but I started with Aikido, and I did Aikido for, man, like 10 years or so. It's not Steven Seagal, is it? No. Okay. No. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Steven Seagal, yeah, he's, he's down in Florida. This, uh, uh, all right. We've got our... Uh, no, our uh, Club up in Michigan, uh, the instructor uh, was a was a state police officer okay. who, beyond teaching Aikido, also really knew how to apply things in in reality because he had he had been in situations where he'd been on, you know, undercover drug busts and and different things where he he legitimately had to apply what he knew to real life situations and and he was a fantastic in, instructor, um, absolutely love him, and uh, there was also a really good Aikido club at the university of Michigan. So between having a place kind of in my local hometown and then also at the university of Michigan, I could train Aikido at the university of Michigan, come home to my hometown, train there. And then Aikido is, I mean, Aikido is fairly well represented kind of around the world. There, mm-hmm. most places I've lived there, there have been Aikido clubs. So right. I, I did it for about uh, 10 years. It wasn't until I, I moved to Japan that a, a friend of mine there, a neighbor said, Oh, you, you know, you wrestled in high school. Have you ever considered trying judo? And, you know, I didn't know anything about judo at the time. And so I said, you know, no, but I, you know, I'll give it a try. And, uh, I just fell in love with it. And since then I, uh, I got my black belt in Aikido and, and I really appreciate Aikido for, there is some beauty to it. And I developed a lot of flexibility. I, I attribute my flexibility as probably came from, from Aikido but uh judo is much more the competition aspect of judo the fact that it's not so aikido is very formulaic you attack in a particular way you grab in a particular way and and there are a series of techniques that you do from that judo to me was much more okay we're gonna yes there are particular throws that you can you know that have elements to them but then we're gonna then we're just going to let you loose. You know, we're just going to let these two bodies push at each other until, and see if one of them can figure out where to, where to fit in one of these throws. And I, I love that. So <laughs> when you first showed up to judo, mm-hmm. you get your gi on, you get out on the, the mat and you're with probably some Japanese kid. Yep. Right. Yep. Did they take it easy on you? Uh, no, not no. at first, maybe a little bit, but not, not, I wouldn't attribute that to me being blind or anything. I think there was a number of factors, me being a foreigner, okay. um, them not knowing, you know, you have to learn how to fall with judo. So right. they, they do tend to take it fairly easy on, on everyone for okay. the first, you know, little bit of time, okay. uh, because you don't want to slam a person on the ground and, 
and knock them out or, or anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, initially, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they took it a little bit easy on me, but I, I really think it was much more to do with, with those factors than it was about me having a visual impairment. I was very lucky in the, the instructor that, that I initially found that my neighbor had introduced me to. He had lived in the United States for a couple of years. He was a Japanese man who I believe uh, he had been a pilot in the U.S. I think I can't remember the exact details on, on how he came to the U.S., but he got his pilot pilot's license, I think, here. He lived here for a number of years. Um, went back to Japan, uh, opened up his, his club there. So he had, he was a very worldly individual mm-hmm. and my neighbor kind of talked to him beforehand and said, look, you know, I've got my, my neighbor, he's, he's blind. I'd like to bring him along. Um, so there was that, uh, the, the professor was prepared a little bit. And when I went, he also didn't, it wasn't just like throw me in with the entire group. It was okay, for the first couple of days, we're going to, we're going to give you these couple of guys that you're going to work with. And they're going to kind of teach you, teach you some basic things and kind of introduce you to the, to the martial art, which I also think was, was good. It wasn't just throw me into the entire club. Cause I'm sure that would have made some other people uncomfortable or awkward, oh, but, yeah. but yeah, no, teach me the basics. Now this, this was the ideal situation okay. years later. Also in Japan, I did a martial arts program that uh, was a full-time uh, university program for kind of like a foreign exchange program for martial arts. So I don't even know what that means. Exactly. It's, it's bizarre. The concept doesn't exist, doesn't exist outside of Japan as far as I'm aware. Okay. And it might exist in Korea as well. But, um, so basically as a foreigner, I applied to a university to go there as a foreign exchange student, specifically to do martial arts, to do judo. So it was a year long course at um, what's called the Kokusai Budo Daigaku, which okay. is the International Budo University, International Martial Arts University. I went there and my course of study was judo. You could choose judo, kendo, or... God, what were they? Judo, kendo, or... I'm trying to remember if karate was an option, but judo and kendo were the primary two. So basically you could go there as a foreign exchange student specifically to study one of those martial arts. Oh, okay, so... Rewind just a yep. little bit. Sure. So you leave Spain, you go to Japan to do what? Teach English? Teach English. Okay. Yep. Yep. So in Japan, you're you're introduced to judo. Yep. And how long do you do that style of judo before you apply for the university? Uh two and a half years. So two and a half years doing judo and teaching English. Yes. Then you're like I want to study judo full time. Yep. Is that how that went in your brain? Absolutely. And so you yep. heard about this school and you applied to it and you got there as a foreign exchange student. Yes. Or, is that right? There were, right? Yeah. So one of my, one of my, inst- my, so the instructor that I had in initially when I first moved to Japan, it was mm-hmm. a city called um, Kitakyushu. My instructor in Kitakyushu said, I want you to meet a Nakajima sensei. He's this, uh, he's a sensei in Tokyo. He, he's really interested in inclusive martial arts, martial arts with people with disabilities. I met. Can, can I pause? Yep, one? absolutely. You, you've used this word inclusive a mm-hmm. lot through this conversation, or a few times through this conversation. Sure. And that's linked to people with disabilities, correct? Like on some level, like as you use it. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole, whole topic of discussion. Who's included in inclusive? Because that's, it's a changing, it's a moving target. Okay. Yes. In this case, typically when I'm speaking right now, um, for purposes of this conversation, inclusive would typically mean inclusive of, of students with disabilities. Although I tend in my, 
in my work and in my daily life, I try to, I try to make inclusion mean across many different areas, socioeconomic, socioeconomic, okay. gender, uh, you know, but the, the couple of contexts that you've used it so far before yep. that explanation has been with, um, people with disabilities. Has been with people with disabilities. And so program. when you say this instructor in Japan. Yep. He was interested in, in inclusive martial arts in the sense of for, for people who have disabilities, whether they be sensory or physical disabilities. And when you say inclusive with that, that means they mix it in with others as well. Sure. Correct. Yep. Doesn't, okay. doesn't always, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes yes. And sometimes no, depending okay. on the, but for, in my purposes, yes, for judo, it's typically inclusive mixed in with other people. Okay. Yep. So you, so you're introduced to this guy. He's in, he's, he wants to, to do this program. He puts me onto this program. He okay. says, you know, like you should really, you know, you should look at this program. I, I had not heard of this program specifically. Um, but, uh, Nakajima sensei, who is the, the instructor in, uh, he was based in a university in Tokyo. Um, he, he said, you should, you should consider this program. It, it would be good for you. It, it would be a chance for you to, you know, study Japanese, study martial arts. And, uh, and he happened to be friends with, with one of the instructors. So he said, I think I can get you a good chance of getting into this, this program, or at least introduce you to the instructor. And also, I think on some level, Nakajima sensei was interested in challenging the program as much as I think he thought it would be of benefit to me, but I also thought he would be, he thought it would be of benefit to the program. Okay. He was very much that, that type of individual who wanted to challenge other people's mindsets as well. Okay. So when you, when you got accepted and, and moved to Tokyo, right? Is that right? Um, yeah, the program itself was outside of Tokyo, but I, I spent a transitional period of about three to three or four months living in Tokyo. Okay. Yep. Um, so were you, how, how intense is just studying judo? That I mean, it was, it was intense. It was when I, so the program that I went to, it was at a small, uh, it was in a small town, uh, about, Oh, maybe an hour and a half, two hours from Tokyo. Okay. It was get up at 6 a.m. or 5.45 to be running by 6 a.m. They would do like morning runs. Um, after that, go to the gym, weight lift for a while, eat breakfast. And then we'd have a few courses each semester. So uh, they could be Japanese culture, Japanese language, or a judo fundamentals course, uh, learning the judo kata, uh, studying, um, rules of judo. Uh, we, we had, uh, we went through a referees training course. So they're just different aspects of judo as, as an entire art, not just, not just go do judo, but let's look at the history of judo. Let's look at why we do judo this way. And let's look at the rules of judo let's look at the culture around judo, you know, very much judo as a, as a full, almost lifestyle, so to speak. That's really amazing. That's really it's cool. Cool as shit. Yeah, man. Holy fuck. It was, it was challenging. Like it was not, it was not easy because there. So I guess this is, if anything, this is kind of where we get into the meat of, of the conversation. When I, when I went to do this program, nobody wanted to train with me because there were there was a small group of us foreigners, but then the rest of the university is Japanese students who are there legitimately studying the martial arts as well. Um, many of them 
planning on going into the police force, going into the fire department, because that's part of um, part of the requirements of becoming a police officer or a firefighter is getting is having a black belt in the martial art and also having like a particular level of physical fitness. So you've got a you've got a very mixed or or other people that were interested in becoming um, PE teachers, is you know so f- you figured that that kind of dynamic of people primarily at this university, and here come, I think there were seven of us foreigners, into the room, all of us from other countries, a lot of us tall white guys, not all of us but you know several of us, and then this you know blind kid as well, so. There are a lot of a lot of egos here, and one of the things that I ran in well, all of us ran into the fact that no Japanese individual wants to lose to a foreigner to a gaijin, because that would be, I mean, losing to a foreigner in a Japanese martial art, you know, a little bit looks looks bad. Losing to a foreigner who's also blind, that's even worse. So there were, I mean. It was it was a struggle to get the Japanese students to work with me. Um, we would have these training. Uh, we'd have uh, our practice every day from oh god, it was I think if I remember correctly, it was something like four to seven every day. So you know a three hour block of, of practice basically, and uh, there would be about god anywhere from like forty to fifty people in the room, and you'd all line line up around the walls, and there were all these. Um, the circles in the middle of the room for you to do, uh, for you to do rounds of training. And that's all we did for three hours. It was just round after round after round. And there wasn't enough room for everybody, everybody to be training simultaneously. But you know, the idea was it was, it should have been fairly balanced where you, you know, you'd all get a good number of rounds each night. Nobody wanted to train with me. Nobody wanted to go in a circle where their friends could watch them, you know, get foot swept by a blind guy. So it was, it was, for the first, you know, two, three months, I would, you know, maybe do a couple rounds with the other foreigners, but by and large, I, I would just stand there bored. Nobody wanted to train with me. So I talked to the director of the program and he said, well, why are you training with the boys? Come over to the girls. And I'm like, you know, what do you mean? He's like, you can spend three hours standing in a corner over where the men train, or you can spend two hours getting your ass kicked where the women train. I said, okay, I'll give Fuck this a try. Yes. So I went over to the women's club, to the women's dojo and they were, they didn't care. They don't care who you are, you know? And that was one of the things that the director said is like, they're going to women in Japan have been accustomed to being underestimated and kind of put in a corner for, for years. You know, they, they understand what that's like. They're going to treat you like they would treat anyone else, which means they're going to, they're going to try to kick your ass. They're going to try to fuck you up. Yeah. And they, they, I mean, there was a girl, I remember typically in judo, it's you, you, you throw to a point, you know, you get a point and the, the match ends. Uh, there's not a lot of ground fighting. I remember there was a girl I was training with. I, I swept her legs. She hit the ground. She pulled me down, rolled over on top of me and proceeded to start choking me. And it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> I theoretically already won this match, but okay. Like, oh, that's awesome. Just keep going. Hey, man, I have to pee really bad. Sure. So we're going to pause yep. this, and we're going to get back to your university. At cool. Cool. All right, back. Thanks for letting me take a break there, buddy. Hey, it's um, okay. So you get you get taken down by the lady. Yep. And she chokes you. Yep. And so you, you started training with... Yeah, started training with these girls regularly. I I would do uh, you know a few times. It depended on the on the week, but yeah, I would spend a few days over in the in the women's dojo and a few days in the men's dojo. 
And uh, the program that I did lasted for in total a year. And uh, oh man, I think it was in November of, I'm trying to think. So let's see here. The program started in March, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep, March. So from March to March, so one, one year. So around November, I'd been there for about seven months. I did a tournament uh, in, uh, I did it. So I did a tournament with, uh, with the men that had, you know, that had not really been training with me. And during that tournament, I, I think I won five matches in a row, something like that. No shit. Just took them all out. And, uh, those, that was the number of points that I needed to get my black belt. So, uh, that, that's how I, so at the time I didn't have my black belt yet, but, uh, in order to get a black belt, you have to, in Japan, the way it works is you have to win a certain number of matches in a tournament. And also you have to perform a, a particular kata and do a couple demonstrations of technique. So I got the points that I needed to get the black belt. And, uh, the, the director of the program, whose uh, name is, uh, uh, Katsuhiko Kashibazaki. Kashibazaki sensei is a world, world champion. Um, he, uh, a judo world champion. He, I think he was the, the world champion twice, two or three times. He was really well known for, for a couple of particular techniques. Um, our friend, uh, Tommaso, who's, who was on the, the show previously, mm-hmm. uh, like immediately knew who this guy was as soon as I mentioned him. Oh, that's awesome. And to this day, Tommaso is extremely envious because, uh, the Kashiwazaki sensei, when he found out later on that I had won all of my matches at this tournament, uh, he just, he said, I'm, I'm going to buy you a black belt. And then he said, no, wait, I'm going to give you a black belt. I'm going to give you one of my black belts. And it has his name embroidered in like gold, gold lettering on it. Oh shit. And it's got his, so it's got his name for anyone who reads Japanese. And, and I've, I've seen it demonstrated where I've been wearing this black belt to, you know, dojos in other places where there's been a Japanese people who have come up to me and said like, wait, that says, you know, Kashiwazaki, is that the Kashiwazaki? And it's like, yeah, that, that was my instructor. And then they're all like, oh shit, like your judo must be really good. And it's like, well, no, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not, not that, not, not Kashiwazaki level good, it, but yeah, no, that, that was somebody I trained with. That is that is fantastic. But I think I think that I think Kashiwazaki Sensei that entire time was just laughing behind his hand, going like, "Those fucking men, like, treated this blind kid like shit, and look at that. Like now he just kicked their asses. He just kicked their asses. And what's yeah. what's fucking phenomenal about that story, or even more phenomenal, is those women were underestimated, right? In yep. the sense of like, yep, they're put over here. They're always, you know, in the I'm sure in the Japanese culture, you know, women walk behind. I mean, I don't know if it's still that way now, but just different, just treat you know, differently, yep. right? Yep, absolutely. It's it's you know, it's it's okay if a man has a has a uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um a mistress, but you know, like it's expected that the wife is at home taking care of the kids, like right. those sort of things. Like there's always different standards. And now there's these fucking badass women yep. in the other gym, yep. you know, kicking this white American's it's ass, ass yep. which then eventually makes them tough as fuck. Right. It, it definitely helped. I mean, their, their practices were intense. There was no taking breaks. There was no standing against the wall. It was, you know, three hours of we're doing, you know, drills, we're running, we're fighting, we're doing more drills. It was constant. Their, their level of intensity was something just beyond belief. They, 
I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say in, in the middle of the summertime, they would continue training until a person passed out. And that's how they decided that maybe it was too hot to train. That's like they awesome. were those sort of people. So that would, that makes that me think that you're that sort of person. I definitely was at some point. Um, I, I'm a little bit more intelligent now where I'm, I'm not going to train until I pass out anymore. Right. But, you, but you, but you enjoy the suffering is what I'm what absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sounds like, like that adventurousness that putting yourself out there is, is there, but it, there's also this, this idea of how much can I suffer? Right. Like, how, like wrestling yeah. is that way. Right. Yep. Like, would you say that that's, I'm onto something there? Like, I think, I think, I think so. Yeah. It is that interest of how, how far can we go? Mm-hmm. Like, how far can we take this? Um, I mean, same doing a PhD, you know, part of, part of that was, that's masochistic. That's, too. that's absolutely masochistic. <laughs> it's, can I do this? How, how far can I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my next step is going to be like, quit everything and become a writer because I, that, I mean, that's the only other thing that I can think of is like that. That's masochistic. Oh my God. Like that... what else can I do that would, you know, be a challenge? Cause I, I like, I like having these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get your, I mean, what the feeling you must've had right to receive your black belt in judo in Japan where it came from right the father grandfather whatever word we want to say of jujitsu right the mm-hmm. the creator of that right like the the basis of it yep you you get a black belt from a fucking japanese dude like yep does that do you have a lot of pride like how does that yeah. like flow through you in a couple of ways. So one is there's always this level. And I, I feel like other people we know would, would say something similar. There's always this idea that it, I need to live up to this. Mm-hmm. Like I don't necessarily ever feel like I deserve uh, the level that I have. Okay. It, it's no, one of those okay. things because if, if I felt like I deserved it, then I probably wouldn't deserve it. You know, because it represents something that I need to, I need to continue working to, to have this, this, especially in judo to have this black belt from somebody who is world renowned for judo. You know, my judo isn't at that level and I need to continue working. Do I deserve the black belt in the sense of, I put in a lot of effort to get that. It was not given to me out of charity. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's like, I have these two conflicting feelings of like, yes, I know I earned this black belt. Now, does that mean that my skill is good enough to wear this black belt? Well, you know, I can always improve and I'm always going to keep improving. So, um, I'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is that something that happens with, with, I'm nowhere close to a black belt. So is that something that like you get this black belt and you're like, "Ah, do I, I earned it. Like I get that process of it. Yep but do I deserve it? Right? Like, yeah, I, I deserve is like w- one of my least favorite words in the, sure. the word. I don't believe there's not, there's the only thing. There's only one thing that I believe people deserve and that's love. Yep. That's it. I yep. think the rest of that word can fuck off. Right. Sure. When someone says I deserve this, I deserve I, that. Totally. You know, totally. Bullshit, right. Yes. Um, so when you have a black belt from a fella in Japan, there's probably some level of like, Oh fuck. Do I, do I, is it, is this real? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, am I a person that has, you know, so then you have to constantly work harder and harder and harder yeah. to, to what's the word yep. 
not prove, but you know what I yeah. mean? Like keep it or I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I totally get you. And you know, it always, one of the things that, that irritated me, uh, when I was doing Aikido is when I, when I got a black belt in Aikido, one of the first things people said to me was like, oh, well now you really start to train now. Now it's really, now you're really gonna, gonna start doing Aikido. And it's like, no, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like that's, that's, that's why I now have this black belt. And I was, I kind of hated that attitude of like, oh, now your real training begins. There is a grain of truth to that though. But I, I think it has to be phrased a little bit more delicately. It's now that I have a black belt in judo, it's like, okay, I need to continue to improve. I need to continue to diversify. I need to continue to tweak and to, and to make sure that I don't remain stagnant. Okay. So you get your black belt, then what, what happened? Um, around that time, I, so the program, uh, ended in, uh, April of, uh, of the following year. God, what year was that? 2011, if I'm not mistaken, no, 2012. Um, I came back to the U S uh, shortly thereafter is when I was, uh, was when I took the trip that I mentioned to you previously, where I decided to hike across uh, Northern Spain because it was one of those things. I had some downtime. I had a little bit of money saved up and I just thought, well, it's a good time to just kind of learn to be dependent is the way I phrased it to myself, because it was one of those things. I'm going to put myself in a situation where I have to rely on other people to get me everywhere I'm going to go. So I went to, went to Spain and, and, uh, started this hike where every day I just, not quite every day, but my idea going into it was every day I'm going to ask somebody to, to help me walk, to, you know, guide me along this, this hike. Um, I want to talk about that a little yep. bit. Okay. So if you think about, or if we process this a little bit about like someone that has visual impairment, blind, um, we talk a lot in our society or the world or whatever, fuck, however we it about being independent, right? Yep. Like yep. you need, you, Nick, you need to learn to be independent sure. because nobody's going to help you in this life. You've got to learn how to read Braille and Always. all that. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, learn to live on your own. You got to, you're going to have to be independent because someday you're going to be on your own. And yep. that's what, that's what we, you know, you need to get out there yep. and figure it out. And that's what, and I think that's even what we say to people that aren't have any disabilities. You Absolutely. Need to learn to be independent you can't rely on other people it's a very cultural thing here in the u.s in particular yep and so fast forward to you get back from japan and you're like you know what i'm gonna do i'm pretty independent (laughs) i need to learn to i'm gonna learn to depend on others yes get me through yeah eight kilom 800 kilometers of hiking i i would dare say i was i was so independent that it was unhealthy i'm somebody who's been fiercely fiercely independent to the extent of like did not like to accept help from anyone and why why didn't you want to accept help from anybody that's a really good question because i always felt that help was uh underestimation you know an unsolicited help let's put it that way unsolicited help to me always felt like somebody was underestimating me and some people certainly were some people certainly were not everybody. Some people were just good people that, you know, would see me and say like, Oh, Hey, you yeah, know, you need any help or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So do you feel like you, okay, here's, I'm going to, we're going to get there. We're just going to yep. go there. So when you say that, do you feel like you've always had something that you had to prove? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, have, I think that's been, yep. Do you have a chip on your shoulder or did you, you know, I think there was a period of time when I certainly did. Uh, I 
do not believe I do now, or at least I've, I've tried to, uh, chip away at that chip mm-hmm. so that it's now more of a crumb than a chip. Okay. So what about ego? Where's ego playing all of that? Definitely. Definitely. There's some, some ego. My, my fiance points it out every now and then that like, I definitely have some, some ego around wanting to compare myself to others. I think it's hard not to when you have a disability or when you're a human, maybe more generally. So how do you, okay. How do you, so, oh man, there's, man, I love having this conversation. Yeah, no, this this, this is a, so how do you, for you, for me, right? Mm -hmm. I've, I've been in recovery 20 years, so I haven't had any booze or alcohol or drugs for 20 years. Um, but for a lot of those sober years, I have had an ego, yep. right? An ego slash chip on my shoulder, have something to prove, try to be tough. I'm covered in tattoos. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, you know, you go through some life circumstances and your ego gets checked and, and then I start jujitsu, right? And mm-hmm. which is the true, for me, the true ego checker, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Every day. I mean, no offense to Tommaso, mm-hmm. but he's a little man compared to me, right? Yes. Like he's, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm probably almost a hundred pounds more than him. Right. And right. that dude destroys me on the mat all the time. Like, or the few times I've rolled with him, not all the time because yep. I don't get to roll with him that much. So when I say to the listeners out there, the one listener, that's an ego check, mm-hmm. right? Somebody mm-hmm. that's smaller than you that just moves you like, a rag doll yeah. and plays with you like you're nothing is cat and mouse in it. Yeah. Is an ego check. So when I say ego check, that's what I mean to the, yeah. the people. So for you, how did you learn to check that ego or, or hmm. chip away at the, that chip, right? To, to say yeah. it's okay to ask for help. So that's going back to, I had that realization and I don't know exactly when the realization came. I think it was something that, that came little by little over, over many years. But, um, yeah, kind of after I, after my, my period in Japan, I, I had some downtime and I wanted to put myself in a situation where I was going to be really forced to just take help from other people. And that's when I decided, look, I know about this, this hike in Spain. It was something I was familiar with from my time living in Spain and uh, I just thought, you know, I'm going to go go there to where, where the, the hike typically begins, one of the, the famous jumping off points. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to need to ask, just ask people to help me out. Um, I'm going to have to deal with a lot of people who will treat me diff- in different ways. And I'm just going to have to get used to it because if I, if I have a chip on my shoulder and react poorly to them, I'm not going to get anywhere. And there were definitely times where I, I struggled with that, even uh, even doing this uh, this hike where, I mean, there'd be days where, you know, like I hiked 25 kilometers in a day and somebody was like, you know, I'll take the top bunk so you don't have to climb up the ladder. And I'd be like, fuck it. No, I'm taking the top bunk because I can climb up the motherfucking ladder. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, there's those things like, and it's like, that's something that, I definitely struggle with even, even still to some degree. Although now I take it a little bit more in stride and I discuss it a little bit more where it's like, well, look now, are you taking the upper bunk because you, you don't think I can climb up the ladder or are you taking the upper bunk because you're just being kind and you're like, 
you, you know, it's more effort to climb up the ladder. Like where, where does your doubt stem from is, does it stem from the fact that I have the disability or, or not? And that's something like, you know, I still, I obviously still struggle with that, but so question people's yes. um, motivation for the, for the help. Yes. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Okay. It, it's a constant thing, but no, I think I've gotten much, much better at, at, uh, at dealing with it. And also, as I said, just, knowing when I need help and and just going out and asking for it. And like, that's not a problem. I have no issue now asking for help. And there are days when it's like, you know, I don't want to be lost for 20 minutes. I'm just going to, just going to ask, I'm just going to ask for directions. I'm just going to stop that person walking by rather than, uh, you know, going rather than getting turned around or going the wrong direction or something. Um, that is such an interesting, um, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Dilemma, perception, mm-hmm. fuck, I don't know how to describe it because most, God, I'm going to gender this as well. Most men struggle for, I yeah. would say, asking for help, right? Yeah. So I don't think you're not wanting to ask for help is really um, that different than somebody that does not have a disability Absolutely. on the, on a, on a, on the kind of male side of the gender yep. thing. Yep. What's interesting about it is the perception could be that people with disabilities always ask for help or always need help, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea that you're not going to do that, yeah, right? Even though you have this this visual impairment that would, at times in your life, you would need to ask for help on some level. Right, right. like, let's be honest, Pe- people with disabilities are underestimated and I, and I do want to fight that. I want to demonstrate to the world at large that look, we, it, even people with disabilities can accomplish anything that, that someone else without a disability can't, can't, or can accomplish it. We do think, you know, there are different ways of doing things, but that doesn't mean you should underestimate or esteem less or expect less of a person with a disability. So it's that that dual battle between I have something, I have an agenda, I have something that I'm trying to promote. And that's this kind of equality of expectations and equality of opportunity. But at the same time, I don't want to be a jackass. Right. Right. So, you know, it's a fine line there. And, um, of course too, when, uh, I think this happens with a lot of things is anything I can do can also reflect poorly on every other person with a visual impairment. At least when I was living abroad, it was very much a, you know, I was the one blind person, the one foreign blind person, probably the only foreign blind person, you know, living in X, you know, city or possibly X country. Uh, and, uh, so like to a sense it was, I, I had to represent and demonstrate that, look, I, you know, people with disabilities can accomplish a lot. And also, uh, also, yeah, walk that fine line between not uh, not offending and not and, and, and accepting help from people. Okay. And people feel good when, when they help as well. I just realized I got to point out the obvious. Yeah. Yeah. How many fucking blind people in the world have a black belt in judo? A few. Yeah, um, more than you would think. Uh, judo than, in particular. More than 20? That's a good question. Probably. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would say so. Judo In judo, yes. Judo is one of the, I think, martial arts that has attracted the most um, visually impaired people. As far as if you look at martial arts uh, in general, I think judo has, has had the biggest attraction for people with visual impairments. you can grab 
Yes. And it and throw. Yep. So like, so now now I now I'm understanding it a little bit more. Like because if you think about karate, right? Like yep. the traditional martial arts, you have to punch. I mean, people like how, how would a how could a that to me makes more sense that somebody would tech want to feel. Yeah. Right. It's but, much easier. It's it's made. It's much easier to adapt. Judo, That's the word I was looking wrestling. For, yep. Right. Okay. The grappling arts are, are very easy. Now, that's not to say that you can't also adapt other martial arts like karate. I'm sure, I mean, there are definitely leagues of people with disabilities that practice karate. I Specifically for the blind, I'm not sure um, what they do, but I, I know there are blind people that do karate. I'm, it's Right, but l- let's, just, let's just be real about it, right. right? If a blind person's a black belt in karate, right, and mm-hmm. they don't know any ground techniques, right. somebody with sight attacks them, can just take them down, and they don't know what they're... To do sure, they're punching mm-hmm. and kicking does zero for them, right? At that point, right? right. So, and that's yeah, that's why I like the grappling arts in particular because for someone with a visual impairment, you're much more likely to grapple. Exactly. You know, it's it's much more practically useful. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've used it. I've used judo slash jujitsu in real life in situations where, um, a couple of years ago, uh, was it last last year? Uh, I was on vacation with my fiance. And uh, someone tried to grab her purse. So basically they tried to yank it out of her hand. They ended up breaking the strap of it. Now, I didn't know if they had it or not, but I felt the way I was walking with her. I had my hand on her elbow. I felt the way that she reacted and somebody crashed into her. My immediate reaction without even thinking was I grabbed the man's uh, jacket. I think he had something like a fleece on. I grabbed it. He tried to run away. I kind of jumped over jumped past kind of my, uh, my fiance was kind of in between us or mm-hmm. kind of, I kind of jumped around her with still with this guy's coat clutched in my hand. And I ran after him and eventually put a, a what they call a rear naked choke on him. So I put my no arm, shit. yeah, I <laughs> slipped my arm around his neck and took him to the ground Fuck yes. and held him there until I could be sure that my fiance had her purse and that, you know, everything was clear. But, um, it was one of those things that years and years of training, it didn't even, there was no thought involved. It was just, I felt the way my fiance's body reacted and I grabbed hold of what, what I perceived as the cause. And it was just, okay, we're going to, we're going to end this problem here. And so like, yeah, that was, I think that's, that is the like single best like instance of, you know, doing the martial arts have, have served a purpose. Served a purpose. Okay. So you, you do the, you do the walk in Spain, Yep. the, the hike, you finish that. And then did you go, now what? I applied to a master's degree. So this actually dovetails quite nicely into when I was in Japan, kind of discussing again, this, this idea of, of, um, people with disabilities often being underestimated when I had been teaching in Japan, uh, working kind of more officially, someone had asked me to volunteer or to, uh, to volunteer one of my days off, basically, to teach at a school for the blind. So it was in my, it was in my, my city, Kitakushu, and uh, somebody came and picked me up from the school where I typically worked, and they took me over to the school for the blind. And uh, I had spent, you know, like a couple days preparing all these lessons that I was going to do with these kids to try to teach um, blind people using tactile materials. I brought a bunch of different things that they could touch. Uh, I used what are called wiki sticks, which are these kind of like wax... Um, 
flexible sticks that you can press to paper. I use them to make some designs. And I had these like English lessons that I was going to going to do with the kids. I don't think I ended up using any of them. All we did was just talk with different classes all day. And at the end of the day, the teacher who had invited me to the school for the blind said, look, you know, the reason why I wanted you to come out here was not to teach these kids English. I wanted these kids to see that there is, there are options for them because the way that they have been educated is that as a blind person living in Japan, they can become a masseuse, they can do massage or possibly become a musician or they can teach other blind people. You know, they can become a teacher of other blind people. And here is this foreign blind person who's living in a different country, you know, working, living their lives, doing martial arts. Like that, that's what these kids need is this idea that, oh, hey, you know, it's up to us what we do, not up to society. So that got me thinking like, oh man, like I really never considered the advantage that I had growing up in the U.S. where, yes, we do push this independence so much. Uh, and one of the kind of one of the benefits that come along with the way we push independence is, is also this aspect of, well, I can decide what I do and I can make my own path. I can blaze my own trail. So uh, after, uh, after I came home from Japan and kind of after I did this hike, uh, I had applied to graduate school and I applied to uh, what's called the uh, International Education Policy Program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And uh, I was accepted. And honestly, I think to this day, I was accepted because of the, the essay that I wrote was, was exactly what, what I just said. It was this, like, I had a lot of advantages here. I'm really interested in, in like how education works around the world and, and what, you know, kids in other countries who have the same, you know, the same potential as I do, but maybe aren't getting these opportunities. I want to study this. This is what I'm interested in. That's Awesome. Yeah. It, so you have a degree from Harvard. I do. My master's degree is, is from uh, HGSE, Harvard Graduate School of Education. Holy fuck. Yeah. It's, uh, it was the, it changed, it changed my life. Like, and what do you mean changed your life? I met people there that were so inspirational to me. Um, so one of the, my first semester there, well, number one, I, amazing classmates. The, okay. I think, Harvard can get a lot of shit for its undergraduate program. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking ill of their undergraduate program. They have a fantastic undergraduate program as well, but it, it can be criticized for, um, somewhat less diversity. I think. Oh yeah. They've gotten some, they, some I know they've gotten some flack for yeah. it. Not, the, not the graduate school of education. The graduate school of education is extremely international. And in my program specifically was the international education program. So half of our cohort were, were from other countries, was from other countries. Grammatically speaking, that is a difficult sentence. Okay. Half of my cohort was from another country. Um, <laughs> I, I like to, I like to reflect on my own grammar. Uh, so it was a fantastic mix of people from all over the world. But my first semester there, I had a, a course with a man, um, Tom Hare. Tom Hare worked on, uh, he worked under Bill Clinton uh, during um, uh, the renovation of what's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That legislation. He, he was part of that. He worked in that. He was the director of special education services for the uh, Chicago um, Chicago District of Education. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a better way of phrasing that, but the District of Education for the larger Chicago um, metropolitan area. Um, also, 
and everyone knows this about him, so I'm sure this is something that's not a problem to share, but he's also gay. And he... I had no clue. So Yeah, no, he... Uh, so this... He, he kind of just like... There was something about the way he taught inclusion in such a way that was like that. That's why inclusion for me is about everyone because it was about accepting everyone, regardless of gender, about sexual orientation, about disability status. And uh, my first semester there, he, he taught a cor- uh, course that's about um, uh, developing inclusive education. And uh, he, he took it primarily uh, from the legal disability side of things. Like we talked about uh, strategies for students with disabilities, but always extending it then to, well, look, you know, inclusion's about the most amount of people possible in this classroom and accepting everyone for what they were. And I just absolutely admired this man. I, he was one of the, the people that really helped me see that in my career, uh, always, always think of my disability as an asset because it gives me this perspective that someone else doesn't have. So if I want to work in special education or if I want to work in, you know, areas related to education, um, I shouldn't be thinking of like, well, I need to, how do I overcome disability? It's, I've got this disability. This is a huge advantage because I know what it's like. I've lived the special education experience that, you know, make that, take that identity and live that identity. I think that was, that was something about him that I loved. He lived his identity. Um, he was a, a gay teacher in Boston when it wasn't okay to be a gay teacher in Boston. You know, he had, he had teachers when he, when he was teaching, he had teachers that would write the school, write the, the school board or the principal of, of the school where he taught when they, when it came out that he was gay, they, they would write letters saying like, you know, we're not comfortable with our you know kids having a gay teacher. And the principal of his school said, well, take your kids out of the school. Ah, you know, that's fucking right. this is our teacher, you know? And I, you know, he lived that. He lived that identity. He, uh, and, and I think that that boiled down to to me also help uh, helping me like live that identity too. Saying living the the identity that I have. Let's phrasing it that way. So would you could could you say or would this be a a um, fuck I don't know. Did you did you accept yourself more at that point? Right. I think so. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And maybe ego came down a little bit more at that point because there's more acceptance of self. I think so. Okay. Yeah. And that's the one thing I, one of my big takeaways from, from knowing Tom and, uh, and also from friends that I've made since then is that I have, uh, I've spent a lot of time with the LGBTQ community, uh, internationally and in different places where I've lived. And I've always found it to be a group that has, gone through some of the same challenges that I have, that I have experienced as far as being excluded or being underestimated or being, uh, you know, falsely represented or, or whatever the case may be. But it's a group of people who understands what it's like, or it's several groups of people who understand what it's like to, to have a different identity. So when you say that you've spent a lot of time with them wherever mm-hmm. and all these places, how did you fall into those? Those those crew of people like how to how to tell me more about that purely honestly just purely through coincidence, um, you know I at, at some point I was part of a book club, uh, where the uh, the leader of the book club was gay and he was very involved in the LGBT community. This is um I'm sorry this is going to get even more confusing because this is when I lived in in Ecuador, which was after after I graduated from from Harvard, I I uh, took a job in Ecuador working in education. And, uh, there I, I 
kind of through coincidence, through joining a book club, um, got very just, I wouldn't say involved in the sense of, I mean, I participated in, in parades and so forth, but I was just connected with, I had a lot of friends within okay. that community. And, uh, I just always felt like it was a community that accepted me as I, as I am, as a person with a disability, um, pretty, you know, pretty naturally. And, uh, really uh, one of my biggest mantras is that inclusion for any individual means more inclusion for me. So that's why like I, I will march in gay pride parades. I will promote more immigration, anything, anything that can make the world more inclusive will make it more inclusive for me as a person with a disability as well. I think that's something to me that's so important is just recognizing that it's not an all or, you know, it's not a, a me or them. It's, it's an all of us together. Like it's that, it's that trickle down effect. It, it spreads out through society. That's, that's awesome. So when you messaged me, one of the things that you said that you'd be willing to talk about is identity. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, what, what did you mean by that? And, and how, where do you want to, cause I know that oh, you yeah. were interested in a couple of the, you've listened to a couple of the podcasts that weren't jujitsu related. Yeah. No, it's just, so, I just love, I love people who, who have alternative lifestyles for no other reason than I find it more interesting. Okay. And, um, I like to see how people live their lives. I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of stories. You just I, said C by the way. Oh yeah. Oh no, totally. No, it's part of the vernacular. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's, it's natural speech. Yep. Definitely do it. <laughs> Matt told me when, um, I told him that I, you were going to come on the um, podcast and, and that we were talking about, he's like, Oh man, he has, he's such a good jokester about oh, yeah. certain things and, and about, um, sure. He, he made this reference about how Trevor, when you first started jujitsu would say, Hey, do I need to show you that again? Or yep. do, do you need to see that again or something yep. like that? Yep. And so, and just kind of have those, that. those jokes are fun because like you, you have to time them. Like I can't make the joke every class. I have to let a little bit of time go by until kind of people forget about the joke. And then there's like those moments where it's like, yeah, this is, this is the good time to, just for me, it's like picking low hanging fruit, but still like it's, it's the timing. It's all about it. Um, one of the things I didn't say earlier, but, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that I regret not having seen, you know, losing your sight at eight year old, eight years old, the disadvantages, no porn, too young for porn, too young, for too porn. young for porn. Shit, <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there that is that, is a tr- uh, you know what? The only boobs I had seen were I don't moms. I feel sorry yeah. for people until you just said Say, that. Yeah. Now I feel sorry you haven't seen yep. porn. The you only- don't get to enjoy Pornhub. No, no, no. It was the, you know, that was the, so all those, yeah, that's the, those are the images that I missed, but, but we always have women's tennis. So there you go. (laughs) That's audio porn right there. Audio porn right Mm -hmm. there. There you go. You just put that, put your headphones in. Yep. Lock the bathroom door. And just listen to those. Just listen to those ladies grunt. Yep. That's funny. Okay. So, (laughs) so I had, I had to take this into the non-serious spectrum for a moment. I, 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 I appreciate um, people being able to um, not take themselves so seriously, make light, joke about, because yep. everybody has shit that they can do sure. on themselves and and throw themselves under the bus and yep. have fun with themselves. So oh, I humor, humor, humor is so. so oh, I important. bet it's played a huge part in your life. Oh my god, I love I love humor. I've always I've not necessarily I've never been the class clown, but I've well I take that back actually growing up I was never the class clown in graduate school I think I'm much more the class clown I'm much more likely the person to to say a joke in a serious context yeah because everybody's so fucking serious everyone's so fucking serious and 
honestly, the, the reaction I've gotten from 99% of my professors has, has been gratitude for that, you know, moment of, of levity, just lightening the mood yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yep. yeah definitely. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's good to know that you're, um, I knew that Matt prepared me that you were a jokester, but I yeah, wanted to, definitely. you know, it's been a pretty serious conversation. No, I know so it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things because we're, we're talking about super serious topics. or like, well, I mean, we're talking about topics that are, that are important and so forth and, and meaningful to you. Meaningful. Answer. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I like to, I like to joke about it too. Okay. So, um, let's transition from Pornhub to, um, to, open, uh, open alternative lifestyles. Yeah. So those have been something that you've, um, I just, I find them interesting. Okay. You know, um, I just, yeah, people are, people are cool. I love to, I love to know how people, people live. People are fucking cool, right? Like yeah. weird and amazing what they're attracted to and right. what is, you know, what one person's attracted to another person's not. Mm-hmm. Or two people can be attracted to the same thing. I mean, it's, yep. it's amazing. I'm a big fan of alternative, um, lifestyles, whether that's in the LGBTQ or open relationships yep. or music or punk rock or whatever yeah, the thing is, right? Yeah. Like anything yeah, yeah. that kind of bucks the system. Yep. I'm fucking about it. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I was a, I was a punk rock kid growing up. I listened to one of uh, your previous episodes where you were discussing with your friend. I want to say Sean, Shane, Shane, Shane. Yeah. My best yeah. friend from growing up. Yeah. Yep. Listening to punk rock and, and yeah, I was right with you the whole way. like, yep. All yep. the, so what's, who's your favorite punk rock out, uh, band? Oh my goodness. Nowadays I'm much more into ska. Okay. Ooh. Uh, I've kind of, kind of made the transition. Um, there's an artist, uh, well, streetlight manifesto. Okay, don't that, even, nope. Don't even know that they used to be, um, one of bandits of the acoustic Resolu- uh, revolution was part of their, uh, I think it was their original, um, um, uh, Thomas, uh, Thomas, uh, Oh my goodness. His last name is, uh, Oh, uh, it starts with a K anyway. His, uh, stage name is, uh, toe K T O H K A Y something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, musically it's just, it, it's awesome. Super high energy. Love it. But, uh, you know, I, my, uh, my generation, well, I shouldn't say my generation, but like when I was middle school, high school, green, green day was huge. Yep. So green day was, I was a huge fan of, but then, uh, when I started to get a little bit older and a little bit more into, uh, punk rock, I mean, no FX was, mm-hmm. was a big oh, part okay. of it. I've seen, um, God, who did I see that? I saw the Ramones once in concert. Uh, that was fun. A lot of skinheads got punched a lot. Yeah. Um, and when you say saw, you mean you, you heard them. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Got right there into the mosh pit. I mean, I felt them, smelt them. Oh, that's it was, awesome. It was all the full, full experience. That's great. Oh, yeah. Ramones. Um, so what is it about ska? What, what, what transferred from, for you from, uh, punk to ska, punk to ska. ska. just the, the energy, okay, you so know, a little, I, me- a little bit more mellower as you get older. Yeah. You're like you need a little, well, also the saxophone, I think yeah, on, if I had to like na- nail it down to something, it'd probably be the saxophone. Just the, or the trombone, just the getting the horn section into the into the music. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun, kind of fast. So do you like old school ska or do you like newer ska? I don't even know who's makes ska now. So I, I used My to goodness. listen to some. Yeah, I've hit that age where I've stopped listening to new stuff and just listened to the stuff I liked <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago. Uh, I like I like high energy ska. Okay. I like fast. I like fast music. Okay. Um, Lyrics are also important, which I think is why I like some, some punk rock is really good for the lyrics. One of the, the funniest things that I read uh, back in 2016 after a particular election was, well, punk rock will get good again. 
And <laughs> did it? I don't know. Actually, I haven't seen much. I'm, I haven't I'm, seen much either. Yeah. No, no, um, unfortunately. So the the only ska that's coming to my head right now that 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 I'm just thinking. Have you ever heard of the Dance Hall Crashers? No. I don't know if they're ska. Okay. A hundred percent, but they're like dance hall music. Okay style but they're from the the mid to late 90s gotcha two women singers for dancehall crashers oh interesting okay and i really like them lots of horns and i think just fun okay i think it's ska i don't know maybe it's not and then mustard plug oh yeah no mustard plug i've seen in concert once or twice they are fun i've seen them once and that's where i fell in love with them yeah Um, yep so i've seen them i saw them in Boulder or Denver, I can't remember. Okay. I saw them, um, I think it was in Detroit or Chicago, but yeah. yeah. So they're a fun band. I really like yeah. them as far as, is that ska? Uh, I would consider it ska. ska. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had a roommate in, when I lived in Colorado that was really into ska and I think Dancehall Crashers falls yeah. into that. Well. I'm not particularly uh, bothered by, you know, genre, genres blend together. Yeah. If I like it, I like it. Yeah. Um, but I think it falls in that genre. Yeah. It's just, it's just an interesting view of it so, yeah. yeah yeah but um so open or you like um alternative lifestyles you're into punk rock so um you go to ecuador yeah. after you finish your master's degree then what brought you to to kansas phd, PhD. purely yep yeah. uh good uh Oh, one of my, one of my former professors had recommended it, uh, had recommended the, the university of Kansas because their special education department is, is ranked uh, number one or number two consistently. No shit. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. They've got a really good, really good program. So yeah, I, uh, having a master's from Harvard, I'm sure it wasn't hard to get in. I never over, I never take it for granted. I I treat everything like it's. Because I, I think there's still always that part of me that's like, well, I don't know. There are a lot of good people out there. You know, there are, I've met in my life. The one thing I have to say is I've met a lot of smart people that I just go like. That's fucking funny that you <laughs> just said that because I was just thinking that I'm sitting here like, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, de- I'm self-deprecating. Like I'm yeah. just, I, sometimes I just feel like I'm just the dumb meathead that just likes oh, to have conversations absolutely. with people, right? Like, yep. I like to lift heavy things and do stuff and have conversations with people. I'm like, I'm get to talk to these fucking people that are super smart. This guy sitting across from me. That's, you know, studied judo as a black belt and got his master's from Harvard. And I'm just this fucking meathead. <laughs> and I, I feel the same thing about myself. It's, it's not interesting. It, it, it is. It is. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's why we're, we're probably decent people. Well, speak for yourself. Nah, nah. I don't know if I am. No, I'm a pretty good guy. No, nah, so. you, you strike me as a, as an okay fellow, but, so, uh, well, the fact that you said I'm an okay fellow, you're a pretty good guy in my book. I love okay. it. like saying okay fella. It's pretty that's pretty that's it's, pretty Michigan, Minnesota kind of it's, kind of thing. It's very uh, northern Midwest, yep. Yep. Yeah. So So did you decide in Ecuador that you that you wanted to get your PhD? I decided that I wanted to get a PhD. At, at the time uh, a few years kind of were in between uh, while I was deciding exactly on the program. I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I worked for a few more years before I yeah, I was in Ecuador for two years. Then I was, uh, there were two more years that I was, uh, no, three, uh, three years that I was living kind of between, um, I took a job in, uh, I was in Geneva for a couple of years. Um, in what? In Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland. Oh, Geneva. Yeah. Okay. I worked there for a couple of years on a, on a prod, on a, 
an interesting project uh, called the Accessible Books Consortium, okay. where we basically financed uh, NGOs from around the world to produce books in accessible formats for students with um, reading impairments. So okay. visual impairments, dyslexia, uh, physical uh, or um, physical impairments that, such that they, they can't access a, a print book. A physical book. Okay. So we uh, financed a lot of NGOs to produce uh, um, accessible books in primarily in digital formats. And I was there for a couple of years. And that's when uh, my contract there was was very specifically two years. Okay. You could only work for two years as an independent contractor. Okay. So I just timed it. So uh, by the end of that that period, I was I decided upon the program that I was going to apply to. And so you decided Kansas. And yep. yep. So when did you when did you find jujitsu? I found jujitsu actually. Uh, sometime while I was in Japan, uh, I started training on the weekends. Uh, on Saturday afternoons, I would go to a place. Uh, it was called the Neiwaza Kenku, uh, Kenku, uh, Neiwaza Kenkukai. Is that right? I think so. Kenkukai. Anyway, Neiwaza Training Association. And um, what Neiwaza is ground fighting in Japanese. Okay. So um, it was a group of, of kind of older, old, older, primarily older guys, I would say, like at the time, older in the sense of they're probably mid-30s and upwards. Um, compared to at the university, it was mostly like 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Okay. On the weekend, I would go out to this kind of old, grizzled, older grizzled fellows that all they did was the ground fighting. Okay. Because there there comes a point for some people that they don't want to fall down anymore. Right. So, <laughs> so they so just start on the ground. so far away. <laughs> yeah, the ground gets further and further. That's right. So uh, they, they were just the association that, that did ground, ground fighting. And uh, I trained with them oh, several times over the course of a few months. And... Uh, I mean, I guess maybe at the in my peripheral, I, I knew that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was a thing, but it was kind of doing that. I I just realized, like, yeah, you know, I I like the ground fighting as much as the as the as the tachi was as the stand-up fighting. Mm-hmm. So when I uh, when I came back to the U.S., I I looked for a in a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academy, kind of near where my parents were living at the time, or well. Um, where I, I went and I was with my parents for a time and I looked for an academy around there and found a place and just started training BJJ and, and, uh, I have stuck with it because I'll look for both. I'll, you know, I'll look for judo and I'll look for, for Brazilian jiu-jitsu in, in every place that I go. And if I can't find one, I can find the other pretty consistently. So, you know, in Ecuador, I did, I found uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Geneva. I found it. Um, whereas I haven't been able to always find judo in those places, which yeah. is sad. Yeah, it is sad. Cause to be honest, I have never, it's been very rare that I've ever seen a judo school. Yeah. Right. It's, it is very rare. We, we have, I was super lucky in that in, in Michigan, in my hometown, we, we do have one, Oh, right on. but, uh, and it's, and it's a phenomenal instructor in Chicago has some really good schools, Boston as well. But the thing with, you know, I was, I was in Boston for a year, but it was just on like the far side of the city and it would take, would have taken me probably an hour and a half to get out to where the place was and it's whereas I could walk three blocks and get to a place that had Brazilian jiu-jitsu so you know it, it's a matter of where's my time better spent especially doing my master's degree in, in Boston it was I didn't have an hour and a half to spend so where'd you get your blue belt my blue belt I got uh when I was in Michigan Michigan okay. yep and then uh what's that is there under a certain instructor like who's the instructor his name was Ryan Hyde uh I don't know where he's at anymore. I, I lost track of him because the the school in Michigan closed oh, due to some unfortunate circumstances. Oh, sucks. And uh, the uh, the owner of the school uh, died. And oh. Ryan Hyde, who was one of the instructors, 
had his own school for a while and which I had visited, but then my mom had told me years ago now that, uh, she had driven by it a couple times and just noticed that it was vacant. And, uh, yeah, I don't know where he went yeah, um, specifically, just but don't know how to run a business, you know, or whatever yeah. things happen. It's definitely, I mean, there are so many factors, especially kind of, you know, we're lucky because we have our, our gym here on Massachusetts Avenue, you know, main street, but, uh, you know, you have to, it's, it's a matter of location. It's a matter of people yeah. and getting the word out there. And a lot of factors go into that. Okay. So you got your blue belt there. And then yep. where were you in, um, your training when you came to rivers? I just got my purple belt, uh, like the month before, um, I'd been training, uh, I'd been living for, uh, eight months in, in Chile with my, my fiance is Chilean. Oh, okay. So, um, we met in Geneva. And we were together in Geneva for a year. Uh, she had to return back to, to Chile because her uh, her position uh, had a had a limit of I think she'd been there for almost four years at that point. Okay. So she had to return to Chile. So um, I uh, moved to Chile and was with her for eight months, kind of while between you know af- between the time that I had applied to KU and and uh, getting accepted and moving up to KU. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd been training in in Geneva probably would have gotten my purple belt there, except I just, I, you know, if, if I had stayed just a little bit longer, I'm sure I would have gotten it there, but, uh, ended up getting it in uh, Chile after I'd been, I'd been training with a club in Chile for seven, eight months. And, uh, before I left, uh, I think that was the instructor there said he really, he really wanted to be the one to give me my purple belt. He had, you know, I, I hadn't been there the longest time, but, but he, you know, I'd been there and, uh, it was a good group of people. And yeah, he, he wanted to be the one to give me my purple belt before I, before I moved. So who did, who did you meet first at, at Rivers? First person I met at Rivers was uh, Tommaso, to Tommaso. be honest. You know, okay. as random as that is, with the connections that we have, because, so, you know, there's a judo connection, Tommaso being a, a lifetime judo, mm-hmm. judoka, uh, and Tommaso also lived in Geneva. So Tommaso and I, that was one of the ways we connected That's immediately. Right. It was like, and we lived there at the same time. No shit. Never saw each other. Probably cross paths on the street, but just never, never saw each other or never, you know, never knew each other until, I mean, you definitely didn't see him. I didn't, I definitely didn't see him. He may have uh, tried to trip me at some point. I wouldn't put it past him. He would have. Yeah. So mean. Probably. I I, so mean, but I, I, most likely I I avoided it being that I, I am a judoka. So that's right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, so you met Tommaso yeah, I met Tommaso. Walked in the door here. Uh, met Tommaso. I believe it was Matt who was there that night. Okay. I believe. I believe Trevor may have been uh, out of town then because Tommaso. It was a Friday night and Tommaso was teaching a, a judo class. So I'm guessing Tommaso. Uh, um, I'm guessing Trevor was maybe not teaching that night okay. for some reason. And then you met Matt. And right? yep, Matt Heidi. When you first met Matt, did you? just was speaking with him. Yep. Did you realize how fat he was? No, no. It took you a while. It took me that first roll to really realize. God, he's so fat. He's, he's got some, uh, so fat. I know. I, I, I like to, I like to rev him about it, especially now with the pod system, uh-huh. because I can just, I can just, you know, you just, say, say how, how fat he is without him being able to touch me. Yeah, I know. Right? You know, it's I like just, that, you, that pod has that, there's the barrier. Yeah. When I, I, when I just hear him speak, I'm like, Oh, you sound so fat. Yeah. Yeah. It is so, true. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. Being that I was a fat kid, I feel completely justified in 
in fat shaming Matt. Oh, I am, you know, I've been fat and Matt makes fun of me for being fat and I'm not fat anymore. So I'm less fat. Yeah. So he makes fun of me for being thin, which makes me worry that I'm getting fat. <laughs> Oh, interesting. So like, I, he's got this psychological game going the other day. He goes, Nick looks like he's getting skinny. He needs some chicken wings. And I was like, wait, are you calling me fat? But in a really subtle devious way, because he is a devious, devious he is man, a devious son of a bitch, yeah, man. He he's is so such a bastard that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll have to check you out when you stand up. I'll, I'll, okay. you know, I'll tell okay. you for real. I'll yep. tell you who's not getting fat is Tommaso. No, no, definitely that not. That guy is a little, he's like as big as my thigh. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a, I always feel bad when I do judo with him because I feel like there are the, I can just muscle it if I'm not careful. Right. You know, it's not that, it's not that I'm massive, like I, I maybe weigh 20 pounds more than him. So it's not, I'm not a huge difference and I'm not hugely muscular either. I'm a, I'm a lean individual, so to speak. Um, but I still like when I'm, when I'm, uh, sparring with, with Tommaso, I'm always like, shit, like I could just make this throw purely, (laughs) purely Purely ugly and muscle. So is it fun to have somebody at similar levels around for judo? Oh my God. Yeah. No, I mean, he is more technically sound. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to hear Tommaso's thoughts. I think I've been more of a competitor in judo in the sense that much of my training was geared towards pure competition and that kind of bullheaded, like I'm going to win uh, mentality of a competition fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- whereas Tommaso is a much more technical fighter. Uh, and I think it's, it's a great influence for me to have that technical side of things to, uh, to be able to like, stop and break it down with them and, and go over what exactly we're doing. Um, so it's a, no, it's fantastic. I, I definitely think technically he's at a higher level than I am. So it's, it's helping me out. That's awesome. That is, that, I fucking love how people find them, find each other and the connections and all of those things, like how you've been yep. able to find Tommaso here in in Kansas and have that connection and yeah. the school. So, um, When you walk into a new school, because you've done that a few times, mm-hmm. and so you come into the, the Rivers and, you know, we're, I mean, Lawrence is a still a city, but it's still small town Kansas. Yep. Like, and I'm sure there are people like, what the fuck is this blind guy <laughs> doing here? This is going to be strange. Yep. And then you get on the mat with them and you make them pay. I hope you do. I try. I try. Yeah. That's got to be that's got to be an interesting feeling. It is. Yeah, no, it's um Yeah, I I would say jiu-jitsu has been a martial art where I've gotten more uh where people I think take me more seriously than potentially other martial arts. Okay. Explain. In the sense of rarely rarely do I have someone take it easy on me in this like well, I've, so I've had a couple instances where I've, I've started to roll with somebody who hasn't gone seriously and I've like choked the shit out of them or something because it's like, okay, look, we need to establish this from, from the get go. You're going to, you know, treat me, you're, you're either going to go normal or, or we're not going to go. Um, but I feel like by and large in jujitsu, it's been rare that I've run across those people compared to some of the situations that I'd had in judo. Okay. Like when I was training in Japan or, you know, 
I guess, yeah. And I, I guess it's comparing apples to oranges in that regard, whereas we're talking cultural differences as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, even like thinking of when I first uh, trained in, in Ecuador in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I mean, after five minutes, those guys were just smashing the hell out of me. Okay. So it was, it was fairly good. I, I think I've gotten pretty good, pretty good response overall. And I think also I've benefited from people that have come before me. There, there have definitely been, um, blinds, uh, you know, black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or blind brown belts or purple belts where, you know, I, I've never met one personally, but it's been one of those things where like every club I've trained, someone's been like, Oh yeah. Do you know about like this other person? Like everyone has heard of the other blind guy who is a black belt, brown belt, purple belt, or whatever it happens to be. All right, cool. So there has been something of a, of uh, the, the people who have gone before. Okay. Um, what is it about? So you, you talked about like, you love the grappling and, yep. and things like that. What is it specifically about jujitsu that you find? Oh, the groping, the groping, the groping. It's all okay. about the groping. It's like, you know, how can I get my hands all over that other person's body uh, legally? <laughs> without uh without getting a without anyone getting any strange ideas and we're sued or sued yeah. yep okay yep it's all about that yep okay mm-hmm. that's i think i i'm not gonna say that's that's for me because i could get in a lot of trouble being a non-disabled <laughs> yeah yeah white guy do you see this mustache that i have <laughs> i can get in a lot of trouble too no <laughs> um does your does your fiance know you have that mustache yes okay. uh she's not extremely enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Does she live here with you? Not right now. Uh, she was here. Uh, so no, we're working on getting her a visa. Okay. Um, we've been in the paperwork process of that for, for a while now. Okay. Um, but then the whole, the whole COVID thing has like put, put breaks on all the, all Kinda the fucked that visa. Up, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So no, she's not here right now. She was here for about a month, uh, in September and I'll be going down there, uh, probably mid to end of November for a couple months. Um, during the, during the, the winter break. So oh, right. Because everything's done yes. basically after, after, after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yep. Exactly. So right? I'll go down there so and then spend. you can go take your finals or if you have mm-hmm. any in Chile, if you wanted to. And exactly. Then, okay. And then spend, well, I'm going to miss you then. Shit. Oh, I'm going to, I'll, I'll miss you guys too. And, and yeah, my, my fiance, Marcella, she, she loves, loves the place here. She loves the Academy here. Uh, she's been in training with us. Uh, oh, she, she into jujitsu. She is. We met in jujitsu. Oh no shit. Yeah. You're supposed to do that, Nick. I know. No, uh, it was, it worked out well because, uh, when I, when I moved to Geneva, okay. I was working in a large organization, something like 1200 people. Jesus Christ. I was asking around to every person I could find like, Hey, do you know anyone who trains martial arts, judo, jujitsu, whatever? Do you know anyone who trains martial arts? nobody at this organization did any sort of like <laughs> probably any sort of sports in general. Fucks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but then one lady was like, you know, I, I have a friend, she works for the Chilean, uh, the, um, uh, what's the correct word? I'm going to, I'm going to, the government. She works for the Chilean government. I was trying to remember cause it's not the consulate and it's not the embassy. Um, it, the mission, the Chilean oh. mission is okay. what they call it in Geneva. So, you know, I have this friend, she works for the Chilean mission. She does Brazilian jujitsu, you know, I'll put you in contact. So, uh, she, you know, connects us via email and I, I write Marcella and I'm like, okay, Marcella, you know, I'm, I, I just moved here. I'm, I train Brazilian jujitsu. I'd be really interested to, uh, to know where you train. Oh, coincidentally, you know, like I studied abroad in Chile. That's cool. Okay. Yep. Thanks. And like a month goes by, she doesn't respond. Oh shit. So I write her again. This is like the end of November. 
I write her again in January. Hey, I'm sorry to bother you. I just, I really want to train. <laughs> like, just fucking tell me where you train. <laughs> I don't even care about meeting you. I just want to train. And uh, she's like, oh, yeah, sorry. You know, I was, the holidays, I, I, you know, went back to Chile to see my family and it's just busy time of year. Sure, you know, let, let's meet up for coffee. So I met her and we uh, we talked for a while and then she took me out to the uh, to the place where, where she was training. And uh, right around that time, she went to compete in a, a European uh, uh, tournament. Uh, like, a, I can't remember if it was like a European Opens or something like that, a jiu-jitsu tournament where she broke her finger. So she, she broke her finger and then she ended up taking several weeks off of jujitsu while, while she was recovering. And I think just, uh, in general, like busy time of the year for her work. So there was about a week, uh, excuse me, there was about a month where I continued to train there, uh, where she was not coming. And during that time, like we just, you know, we exchanged a couple more emails and we ended up getting together for lunch and doing a couple other things. And basically from there, we just kind of started dating, but I met her through jujitsu, but it also wasn't so awkward okay. in the sense of we were like, you know, like me hitting on her during jujitsu. Like, cause yes, that I've, I've had experiences with that. Not necessarily great, you know? So, so chicks hit on you when you are in jujitsu? Um, definitely. Uh, when I was doing judo, there was definitely, definitely some of that happened. Yeah. You are a handsome fellow. Oh, well, I thank know, you. I know that you can't see yourself in a mirror. <laughs> You're a handsome fellow. Oh, I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, no, um, how did this all get started? Yes. Yeah, so Marcella knows about the, the mustache, doesn't love it, but, uh, has come to accept it. Okay. Yes. So, and, uh, I like jujitsu for the groping. That's how it all got started. That's yes. right. Yeah. So obviously she's not blind. No, no. She's sighted. She's sighted. Um, have you dated blind people in the past? I or have you... not. Okay. Interesting. I don't know I why not. I think that's interesting, but I, you know, it comes up frequently. You'd be surprised how often I get, I get asked that question. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's also part of why I just love kind of like alternative lifestyles and, and so forth. And just like the way different people have different relationships to me, it's never, it's never occurred to me to, to want to date another person with a disability necessarily. Right. Like it's never occurred to me that like that was going to be a priority of mine. Although, I know within, within the blind community, it is very common that, you know, two blind people will meet and, you know, have a connection because they have a shared experience. Right. I, maybe at this point, my experiences are so odd that it's hard to find shared experiences unless I'm finding something like through the martial arts or through travel. Yeah, that, or, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Like, like the shared experience is gonna be like, well, like, Oh yeah. I lived in Chile. <laughs> exactly. I lived in Chile and I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Wow. You're like one of the 3% that I can, right. you know. Yeah. And so what is she into? So she is into, she works in uh, mediation and negotiation. Okay. She's, um, she's a lawyer. Uh, okay. She started uh, working in intellectual property law. In, oh, right. uh, yeah. That's how I met her in Geneva. Uh, so she's very, uh, she's very smart. Uh, with those things, she sounds like an idiot to me. I don't yeah, know. no, I barely <laughs> can put two words together in Spanish, but that's because she's from Chile, not, not <laughs> Chilean Spanish is awful. Uh, <laughs> and so, 
No, she's uh, she's really into also, I think in a similar way to me, she's also very interested in, in the way different, she's very open-minded, very accepting of everyone. Uh, she's quirky, you know, she, her friends from, so she had the, the luck to go to private school growing up. Uh, and unfortunately the, the situation in Chile is that a lot of people, uh, I mean, if you want to have a good opportunity in Chile, you, you almost have to go to a private school right. and, and the better private school you can get to the, the better, you know, life chances you will have kind of thing, which is unfortunate. Um, but, uh, so she has a lot of friends that are from very different, how would I phrase this? Uh, socioeconomic yeah. statuses from myself or even from her, uh, at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, she has friends who play D and D and don't have a job. Like she has this wide and her, one of her favorite groups of people to hang out with is like the wrestling club from the local gym because they drink and they do exercise, you know, like they exercise oh, and they drink, different. you know, it's like, that's how, that's how she is. Like mm-hmm. this, like Marcella probably makes my physical fitness look like uh, she makes me look like a fat slob. Oh, I mean, let's, a, let's put it this she's, way. She's, she's jacked. Huh? She's, she's athletic. Okay. Um, when I'm around her, I guess, I guess it's like comparing Matt to Tommaso, you know? Yeah. Tommaso's in really good shape. shape and, and Matt being fat. kind of slovenly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He's going to kill us. <laughs> kill me. I hope so. I, right now I'm not in his pod. So okay. I can make fun of them yep. all I want because then I know it's coming. Exactly. Exactly. Because we talked about suffering a little bit earlier. Yep. Yep. I love to suffer. There's, I am a sick, sick monk, yeah. bastard, yeah. and I want people to hurt me. And I don't know sure. why that is. And it's not like a deviant sexual way. Right. Right. I just, I, I, I want to be the last person on the mat. Yep. I want to almost throw up. I I do that in almost any sport sure. that I sure partake in. Like I, I push it to the limits. Have Have you and I ever rolled together? We have never. I didn't think because so. You're a night guy. Yes. And I'm a a morning dude. Right. Right. We, I thought so. A, yeah. There was a time we were in the same class a couple times, yep. but I was so new. Yep. That I was. I don't know. I can't remember who I was partnered with or at that time. Maybe it was Ron. Oh yes. Yeah. I love rolling with Ron. Oh, I know. Absolutely love it. He gives me such, I just, you know, I, I think I also, I like rolling with some bigger guys because it really makes me really makes me work. Yeah. There's, I mean, yeah. Smaller guys like Tommaso make me work as well. Tommaso. It's a different, it's a different kind of work. The, the, what I find just being a white belt, right? Like when I roll with bigger guys, I've got to figure out how to, position myself differently and, yep. and I can use, um, we're, we're using kind of sometimes strength against strength yep. on some level with technical stuff. But when I'm rolling with a small person there, they use all their technical skills yep. and it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah, that is, um, uh, I try to be very technical and that's, and that's something that people tell me is I'm a very technical person. I don't always feel like I'm technical, but that's, I try to be, and I try to use my weight and I'm right in that middle kind of weight between I'm not a big guy and I'm not a small guy. I'm kind of right in the middle. So I, I tend to fall into one or the other category. So I really have to, to be technical and try to, to work with whatever I've got. I, I, I've, I've realized I'm sure at some point I'll be technical but really, I'm just a dumb meathead, so I just like to smash. Yep. So if I can just get the side control, that's yeah. all I want. 
I want to get side control and I just want you to pay. And I'm to that point in my training where I get to side control and everyone, and then they just push me off. Uh, I can pass guard. But once I'm in that side control, this is where I, that's where I need to work and getting, I need to, I think develop more smash, more smash because the technical for me, I can pass guard because I I'm technical with the passing. Mm -hmm. I get into side control. Now I need to, I need to do a bit more smash. Yeah. I'm not like, if I get in somebody's guard or somebody's half guard, I struggle a lot. Mm. Like I don't quite understand. I'm getting better at passing guard. Not really good people's guard, but I'm getting better at that. But once I'm there, even like even a good, I can I can on even a blue belt mm-hmm. or a, a, a purple I can stay in their hat and yep. side control a little bit. Okay. So I'm getting yep. to be able to to figure that out. Yeah. So, now, yep. it's a it's a it, that's the that's the nice thing about it is it it never, you know you never reach the uh, you never reach the end. Never. It's never, and that's that's the same with. It's the same with all martial arts, really. But I, I find jujitsu, it, it's so much more evident. Mm-hmm. I think it's because it's its such a three-dimensional art. I, and I maybe that, that sounds a little weird to be saying that, but it's three-dimensional to me. And in the, in, there's just any which way you can move. There's so few restrictions on what you can do. If you wanted to, you can just stand up at any point, right? you know, but you put yourself at risk if you do that. That's the thing, too, that I'm you know, just realizing, and, and people say this to me, there's always a counter move. There's always yep. a move to the move, right? So exactly. I'll learn something. Somebody will show me something. I'll do it. And then somebody will do the thing. Oh, right. They didn't show you this part, right? Mm-hmm. Where, I, where I counter that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I just learned that. Yeah. I was hoping it would work. Nope. I, I forgot about, uh, when I was cross training judo and jujitsu at the same time, I believe I was in a judo tournament where I, you know, somebody, I don't remember if they, they did a, a, a throw poorly or I did a throw poorly. And we ended up kind of in like a guard, half guard kind of mm-hmm. scenario. And I just went to stand up. Cause I was like, oh, fuck, I'm just going to pass your guard, like do a stand up guard or it wasn't a, you know, some sort of like stand in my feet sort mm-hmm. of thing to, to pass. And it was like, wait, no, that's illegal in judo. Can't do it. Oh shit. And it's, that's when it's like, oh man, the thing I love about jujitsu is like, Almost anything goes right. as far as like planes of movement. Mm-hmm. So in judo, if you, so if you end up both on the ground yep. and you don't win the point from the throw, right? Right. What do you, what do you do? You want to, there, you want to get to side control and hold them in side control. Almost like you would in wrestling where you hold, if you can hold somebody shoulders to the mat inside control okay. for a period of time, you, you can also win. Like it'll oh, get you points. Okay. Um, so that's why we put so much of an emphasis on, uh, Kisugitame, which is like the, um, what would you call it? Almost like the scarf hold on the ground where you yes. arm around the head, mm-hmm. holding the arm, uh, or, a North South position. Anytime that you can hold a person on the ground pinned, uh, I think if you can do that for 25 seconds or so, oh, you, wow. uh, you win. A little bit longer. It's a little bit longer, but that's why we really emphasis on having a tight, tight uh, control on the ground. Okay. Um, so like, yeah, you just want to get past a person's guard and, and then hold them in a side control kind of position. And there, I mean, we give, they give you 25 seconds or so to, to try to, you know, escape from it. You can't just uh, hang out there forever. But, uh, but uh, that's the, you know, the other thing about jujitsu is you can hang out there, you know, theoretically for, for quite a while. You can... Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to to you're be not stall. You're but. not supposed to stall, but 
You're working on something. Yeah, I mean, it's not a problem to take a minute to get out of side control. So, are you a are you obsessive kind of person? So, do you need to train a lot, or do you just like oh, I'm going to go a couple of days a week and I need to train a lot. I okay. typically before COVID, I was training probably six times a week, six or seven. Oh wow! Because some days I would train twice. Now I'm training. Five times a week is what I aim for. So Monday through Friday? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Sunday or Saturday. Okay. And actually, I've, I've taken a, a step back because I, usually I would have been doing Saturday and Sunday. Now I'm taking Saturday off just to catch up on, do a little bit more work. Or what it really boils down to is um, I have to be conservative about my time so that I can find times to talk with uh, Marcella over Zoom or whatever. Okay. So like because we're separated right now, a scheduling time to be together over zoom is important. So Fuck yeah, it's important. Yep, that can be, you know, that oftentimes is Saturday morning. Okay. Uh, so that to me is, uh, I need to invest that time there. And right now there's a, there's a Marcella trains every day as well. She's right now. She's not training jujitsu. They're not open. Uh, they haven't opened up, uh, uh, Santiago where she's at to the same degree, but, uh, she does like functional training with a class online, which, uh, what's really cool is I will occasionally join her for that too. Uh, you know, I'll zoom in with that or not zoom. Uh, they use a like Google hangout or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to, um, like outside of jujitsu to stay in shape and, and do things? A lot of like the, the hit workouts, the high intensity training. Okay. Um, I have a few routines that I'll do at home or I will, if I, if it's a night where I'm not making it to jujitsu, I'll, I might try to connect with a class that Marcella does. Okay. Um, because I know the instructor and uh, he knows how to describe things. So to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, um, I'll do that sort of training. I used to be a runner. I stopped because, uh, as somebody put it, I don't need conditioning. Stop running. Like do jujitsu. Like your running is a waste of time. Do more jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So I did. And uh, that's good. But the high intensity workouts give me some of that explosive power. And I've really noticed when I started doing some of those training, like doing squats, you know, doing, being able to do whatever hundred you know, a couple hundred squats that ends up benefiting my jujitsu game because then I can explode upward. That's right. Yep. I, um, I've been trying to, not that I feel like I've influenced a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but what I coming from and Ron similar. And so is Marvin. Um, we, but, the three of us come from the powerlifting yes. world. Yep. And so I've been really trying to emphasize to some of the, the new, I would call them newer, younger kids like yep. uh, Andrew. Sure. It's important to lift, to lift things or yeah. to do things to build muscle. The, yep. Just doing jujitsu will make, will make you strong because you're moving people's body weight, but yep. learning to be explosive in different ways will help you. Absolutely. Um, on the mat. Yep. Lifting heavy things will help you on exactly it's one of those things like i don't think running was the best um exercise to complement jujitsu because running it'll build up your cardiovascular but if you already have decent cardiovascular it's not really gonna give you much additional because it's not explosive right i i just um so there's a power lifter that i've loved for a long time and he also threw shot put and in college, um, Chad Wesley Smith, but then he, um, started doing jujitsu, um, a few years back and he trains, um, a bunch of, uh, Gracie Barra guys. Okay. Um, and I was just watching a video on him and he's like, yeah, you can do steady state cardio, but it doesn't do you any good. And it's a good recovery day mm-hmm. workout, mm-hmm. but it's not going to benefit you, um, 
like doing hit training right. or lifting weights for jujitsu. Yep. So yeah, I used to lift a lot of weights. Um, when I was in uh, oh, like high school, I, I did a lot of weightlifting, and oh yeah, even when I was living in Japan and, and so forth, like weightlifting was always a big part of my life. I've gotten away from that more into the more into the high intensity workouts mm-hmm. because uh, I just find those the the sort of like cardiovascular workout I get from that is really pays off as far as like in a, in a high intense match as well. But then also that like being able to do a bunch of squats, I don't necessarily, I've got already a layer of muscle, so I don't need to be pushing that anymore. I need to be able to use it like 30 times in a match. Right. So they have you doing like lots of air squats, push-ups, exactly. Sit-ups. Um, air squats, push-ups, sit-ups. Um, I'll do pull-ups. Uh, so you got a pull-up station in your house. Got a pull-up station. A lot of like uh, abdominal stuff. So planks, uh, or um, just like getting in the squat position and doing uh, you know, uh, move, movement back and forth or oh, right um, on lunges, that sort of thing. Just a lot. I mean, a lot of the workouts that uh, that uh, Marcelo's instructor will do. It, it's a, it's a lot of focus on the legs. Yeah, well, um, the legs legs are everything, man. Yeah, like when this guy was a he was a I believe he was a um, Olympic uh, qualifier for wrestling. Oh. So this guy's a wrestler. Oh yes, that he loves because that's he, all. Exp- yeah. that's what you do is you explode through the legs. And exactly. You know that. So yep. So no, this guy. I mean, his workouts are are killer, and. And it's a lot of leg stuff, which I do. I when I when I'm doing it regularly, I definitely feel it in uh, in training, like how it's benefiting me. Right now, I'm doing a bit more jujitsu and a bit less of that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's just finding the right balance. And and right now, I'm trying to put a lot of focus into my jujitsu game um, because I know I'll be a couple months where I'll be down in Chile and I'll be I'll be doing the the hit workouts every day. So mm-hmm. right now, it's like you know, the more hours I can get in doing jujitsu, the better. Okay, so um. I'd like to ask you like, Hey, what are you going to do once you, how much longer are you going to be in Lawrence? And then mm-hmm. what are you going to do after But I'm sure it's, it's an adventure. You're going to figure out some adventure. Sure. And you probably don't even know what you're going to do once you get your PhD. No clue. I mean, I've got two, two and a half years left on the program. Okay. I'll be around for a while. Um, it's going to depend a lot on like thinking about where, what, uh, where the opportunities are for both Marcella and I. So okay. Marcella, has worked in international contexts. Um, she's getting herself more experience as a, as a mediator and as a negotiator working, um, as a, as a contact point between like her country's government and, uh, the private sector industries. And also then, um, doing mediation with, uh, um, unions and so forth. So she's got a, a really strong set of skills. Um, she's worked with some international, uh, organizations like the, uh, the OECD, which, um, God, was that the, the organization for economic and cultural development or no, something like that. Commercial economic and commercial development, something like that. Uh, anyway, it's going to be a matter of finding like, where's the, where's the place where we can both find an opportunity. Most likely it'll be a big city. It'll probably be like a DC or a Paris or a Geneva, you know, something like that. Okay. Well, and I don't think I will have problems finding work. I'm really interested. My my dream goal is I want to be working for uh, UNICEF or UNESCO. So working for an international organization that that deals with education in uh, education development. So okay. I get like my research interest as a student is how can we develop uh, inclusive education for low income and low resource environments. Um, 
you can't take the the model that we that we have here in the U.S. and necessarily apply it in Ecuador because you don't have a, a computer for every student in a classroom that has no electricity. Right. Or you know, I was um, the beginning of this year. I was in uh, Rwanda for a project. So um, right when COVID began, I was in Rwanda. Shit. I was I managed to get back into the country. Well, we've never really closed our borders, but um, I managed tough. to. Yeah, it was. I mean, I traveled through Munich on my way home and, uh, it was a ghost town. I was like, I think I felt like I was the only passenger in the airport. Like things were deserted, but like the context in Rwanda, you've got, uh, there, there is not always electricity in the classrooms. Uh, some of the classrooms there, there is no electricity, you know? Um, so how do you, how do you get kids with disabilities, uh, in education in those contexts? Well, you know? That's an interesting question because would you say that kids with disabilities or people with disabilities, I mean, mm-hmm. in the, in those third world countries even have an opportunity to get education? That's what we're looking at. You know, yeah, their opportunities are growing. Their opportunities to be in the classroom are growing. Okay. Now so we just need to make to sure that inclusive. the, yep. It's starting to be more inclusive. Now we just need to make sure that they're, that they're getting educated, getting educated. Um, yeah. they're getting, they're getting there, but yep. then are they getting the information the exactly. way that they need to get the information? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what we're seeing kind of globally is we're, we're, I mean, they're still, you cannot underestimate the number of kids that are out of school still, but there've been big pushes around the world to get kids in the classroom and we just, but we need to develop strategies for then, you know, teachers are not trained to work with kids of differing uh, needs. So it's great to have an inclusive classroom where you've got, you know, a blind child seated next to a, a you know, a student in a wheelchair who's seated next to a student who uh, maybe has attention deficit or, or autism or something. It's great that we can create that environment, but, you know, it's also not fair to the teachers to say, okay, now you have to just do this, but not give them any sort of support or training. And that's what I'm really interested in is, okay, like, okay, how can we, how can we prepare these teachers what strategies are effective? You know, that's awesome. Um, to go back to your, to your roots a little bit, mm-hmm. are your parents still in the same town that you grew up in, still in the same town, still in the same house. Yep. Still in the same house. Yep. Um, do you have any brothers or sisters? Two, uh, brother and sister, both, uh, both older, both older. I'm the, I'm the baby. You're the baby. And so like when you say, yeah, you know, I'm going to go, um, hang out, Portugal for yep. a year. Are they like, oh, there goes Nick again? <laughs> a little bit. I yes, definitely, definitely. But um, so my sister uh, joined the Marine Corps straight out of uh, oh, high school. Shit. Yeah, she uh, she's a spunky one. She's about five foot. Well, she was five foot two at her tallest. I, I don't know if she's still five foot two. She she's may have shrunk. Five foot one. Probably five foot one. Five foot. Right. You know, small, uh, full of full of energy, just pure pure uh, attitude. Okay. And, uh, so she joined the Marine Corps and, uh, married a man who's also in the Marine Corps or was in the Marine Corps recently retired. And, uh, they spent a lot of time living abroad. Okay. So they were in Japan. They've been in Hawaii that, oh no, excuse me. I don't think they were ever stationed in Hawaii, but they were stationed in uh, Okinawa for several years. Um, they at the same time when you were in Japan. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I got to visit them a couple of times. It was really cool. That's cool. But, um, so they've, they've had that experience as well. So my sister, I think understands it. I think she, she's not necessarily surprised when I move abroad. That's like, she takes it in stride because she's used to that lifestyle of every couple of years moving. Um, my brother, I think 
is a little bit less, uh, I think, I think for him, it's a little bit more difficult to, to understand that, that mentality, but he did, uh, visit me, uh, once when I was living in Spain and, and it totally like, he loved it. He, he really got an appreciation for why I wanted to be living abroad. Um, so yeah, but I think now nah, he has a, he has a, a, a family, um, two, two very young daughters, five and five and three. So, uh, I think, yeah, for him, it's a little bit more difficult to, to wrap the head around the travel. Like I do. Did your parents come visit you when you were in your different places? They did. They always did. That was the one nice. thing that I wanted to give back to them as best I could is, you know, I, I, I had those opportunities in large part due to my parents. Mm-hmm. And if I could give them the opportunity to come visit, always they've been able to stay with me purely by by luck um they've been they've always been able to stay in a room at wherever i'm living so we've been able to it's basically just been the plane ticket the plane ticket food and stuff yep. while they're there and that, exactly that's awesome yeah it's and that's been very lucky i think when i was in like spain for example you know they would visit on the holidays when one of my roommates would be going home to visit their family or like you know going back mm. to their hometown in spain so there was always this like a room available that's and that's awesome. been good. And, um, are they handling the COVID okay? And all that stuff they're doing, they're doing good. Okay. Uh, they're very responsible. They have their masks with them everywhere they go. They don't go out a lot. Uh, they're pretty self-sufficient. They, they have their hobbies, which, which is good. You know, I think that's the, that's really helped. I think that's helped them with retirement and then beyond retirement, uh, like into the COVID thing. They've, they have their hobbies. They have things to do. They're not bored. Good. Um, and my dad, uh, he's a hunter and a fisher. He just spent uh, three weeks in the, the upper peninsula of Michigan. And, uh, you know, it's him and a couple guys in a cabin. So they're pretty safe as is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that he can do. And the COVID didn't, uh, prevent him from being able to do that. Um, my dad's at a, a high risk. Uh, I mean, he's got, um, existing lung conditions. So, mm. you know, he, he takes things very cautiously, but Good. they're, they're okay. living responsibly. Good. Okay. Um, Nick, it's been, um, quite an honor. It's been fun. Really fun to have you on the, um, the podcast. I would really, of course, love to have you on again. What I'd like to maybe have is Tommaso come on with you and yes. and we have a debate. I don't know. Tommaso and I were discussing this. We think it'd be fun because we we play off each other well with some of our with some of our international experiences and some of our mm. dumb stories. I, I think we tend to we tend to bounce stories back and forth pretty pretty well. It's we, yeah. we have fun doing that when yeah. we're in social situations. And uh just have a, an interesting chat with you guys and, and get under your guys' skin a little bit. So yep. um I do this tag at the end, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard it where I say, um, perseverance through strength and vulnerability. That's yep. my, that's my tagline yep. for, um, iron and soul, which is a company that I have, which is the name of the podcast, but you are the, um, the, uh, really a inspiration to that, um, saying you are what is called perseverance through strength and vulnerability. It's been amazing to chat with you. You've done some amazing things and well, thank you. I would have, um, Never glass, never guessed that you were visually impaired, but if I had just heard your stories, so oh, thank you. Thanks I, for coming on. I have to say, I, I love your, I love the tagline. I, I was telling my fiance this as well. Like I, I just love that idea of perseverance through the strength and vulnerability. And, and a lot of our strengths are born out of our vulnerabilities. I think that's, that's huge. I love the tagline. All right. I've enjoyed getting to know you. And, uh, once again, thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks everybody.